This is episode 262 of Alohomora for January 5th, 2019. And happy new year. Um, my name is Rosie Morris. I'm Michael Harley. And I'm Alison Sigurd. And welcome our special guest this week. You know this name, I'm sure, listeners. It is the one, <laughs> the only, Diskid. Not Death Kid. Diskid. Diskid. <laughs> welcome, Dis. Hello. Tell our listeners a little bit about you your Hogwarts house, uh, wand, how you got into Harry Potter. Patronus, Ilvermorny House, whatever you want to tell us about. <laughs> uh, I started uh, getting into Harry Potter when I was 10, right when they actually started making the movies, actually, because everybody told me I should give it a try, and I did, and I was hooked right away. And uh, my uh, Hogwarts house, it is Hufflepuff, but uh, I was actually a four-way hat stall on Pottermore. Whoa, so, uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I picked my house. <laughs> it asked oh. me at the end, what what house do you want? That's I said Hufflepuff. <laughs> That's amazing. You picked the best one, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and my uh, Ilvermorny house is uh, Thunderbird. Oh, nice. Me too. Me too. I wish. <laughs> and my uh, Patronus is a dolphin, and a lot of people weren't too happy about their Patronuses. I loved my Patronus because my spirit animal was already an orca, which is in a dol- in the dolphin family. So that was very exciting for me. Oh, perfect. oh that's nice. so great. And my wand is a uh, maple wood with unicorn hair, which is actually perfect for this episode since it's unicorns. <laughs> yeah. Hey. <laughs> That's so awesome. And listeners, we did get the pleasure of uh, to meet uh, Diz, because Diz, you were at the uh, uh, se- uh, September 1st, 19 Years Later event that MuggleNet held at the park, right? Oh, I was. You? Yep, I sure yeah. was. I didn't meet yeah. anyone. I was running around all weekend. <laughs> <laughs> we got to sit next to each other, and we talked quite a bit about the Harry Potter video games, because uh, Diz is <laughs> as much of a fan of those as I am, so uh, we chatted about that, and uh yeah i hope you got lots of free butterbeer that night uh, i actually i hate to i hate to say it i actually don't like butterbeer that's okay juice person oh, oh hey. there was plenty of that that night too that's there fun. was a lot of yeah there was yeah. <laughs> well this episode listeners to remind you our topic it's a topic episode and dis actually suggested this along with arthur and our episode topic is on folklore and myth mythology and we are very excited to talk about this one it's gonna be really fun (laughs) there's a lot to dive into and i feel like we're probably only scratching the surface of this topic i found more than one master's thesis that had been written (laughs) on this so yeah that's so that's so cool i was i was just like poking at one of the ones that you linked us to yeah it's just so cool that people like are starting to extensively write about this and it's exciting that harry potter is being examined in a scholarly um yeah in a, uh, through a scholarly lens well we're probably not going to go into quite kind of masters or phd level thesis <laughs> discussion today but we should hopefully give you a good kind of detailed overview of what um influences from what the folklore bits that we recognized um within the books And of course, none of this would be possible without our fantastic episode sponsors. And this episode is sponsored by Elena Rinna on Patreon. 
And this is Elena's second sponsored episode. So thank you so much, Elena, for Yay! sponsoring us. Yay! Thank you, Elena. <laughs> you guys out there can become a sponsor for as little as $1 a month. And as you already know, the rewards include access to our private Facebook group, Dumbledore's Office, at the $2 level, where fans can chat to each other and the Alohomora hosts about the latest Wizarding World news. You can also get things such as a special decal at the $5 level of the Alohomora logo. You can, get, you can get private readings with Michael. You can get vintage Alohomora t-shirts and just so much more. So do go and check it out. We will continue to release exclusive tidbits for sponsors as well. So visit us at patreon.com forward slash alohomora to find out more. Before we move on to our discussion today, we just want to make sure and do a few shout-out maximas to our listeners who participated in our last topic discussion. Uh, that was episode 260, Luna Lovegood, one of our major topics that a lot of people, or a lot of our listeners had been waiting for. Uh, and I wanted to shout out Maxima first to Griffin Prefect, Blood Charm, and End the Statute of Secrecy for their conversation about how Luna helps Harry understand death. It was a nice long discussion on that and kind of how what Luna's role is in Harry's story. Uh, another shout out Maxima to Helpful Puff on their 14-year-old self's insistence that Luna liked Ron. There was a lot of uh, great pulling and stretching of textual evidence for that. To KCL, Lisa, and End the Statute of Secrecy, again, for using textual evidence to try and pin down how well the Weasleys and the Lovegoods know one another to kind of gauge how well Ginny actually knows Luna before she introduces Harry to the uh, to Luna on the train. And lastly, to Sue, still one of my favorite usernames, for their breakdown of why Luna is not their favorite character. For clarification, Sue did not say that Luna was a character they disliked, but uh, actually kind of uh, parsed out why Luna... Uh, maybe doesn't have as much of a character arc as the other characters in the series and why that was problematic for them, uh, which was which led to a really great, rich conversation. And I always love to see um, kind of uh, points against the grain um, in the in Alohomora discussion. So that was very refreshing. And of course, shout out Maximas to everybody else who participated in the comments on the Luna Lovegood episode. Uh, Arthur Dent, Griffin Puff Girl, I Love Luna Lovegood, Puff the Magic Raven, and you're just as sane as I am. Thank you guys so much for participating in the Luna discussion. Just because that episode is over does not mean the discussion is. Head over to alohomorepodcast.com and check out episode 260, Luna Lovegood, to see all the amazing points that were made by your fellow listeners and add to the discussion. So I guess the first part to really kind of start in this discussion of folklore and myth is to really kind of define what folklore and myth actually means. Um, so folklore is the traditional beliefs, customs and stories of a community passed through the generations by word of mouth. It's also sometimes known as a, po a body of popular myths or beliefs relating to a particular place, activity or group of people. Um, whereas myth is a traditional story, especially one concerning the early history of a people um, or explaining a natural or social phenomenon typically involving supernatural beings or events. There is quite a lot of crossover. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Listeners, you, 
you're familiar with a lot of these, even if you don't realize it, because anything that seems like normal custom wise to you is probably under the umbrella of folklore. Um, So if you ever go somewhere and you're like, I don't know how to act here. I don't know what people do. Right. Or like people seem to have some cultural like identity kind of, or touch points that probably falls under folklore. And so it's, it's interesting because it's always changing and growing and it's cool because it's part of what like brings people together. Yeah, absolutely. And they both seem to have such history to them because they are about these traditions, Um, which is actually quite interesting because both of the actual terms themselves were only really kind of popularized. They only really were invented almost um, in the 19th century. So they're relatively recent terms for a very old idea, um, replacing the the Latin word mythos um, for mythology um, and just simply law, which were all of the facts and traditions about a particular subject. Um, that have been accumulated over time through education or experience. So when we talk about kind of a world's law or, um, you know, it's almost like canon, really, the, the kind of facts or, mm. or ideas about a certain subject, um, that's kind of where it comes from. I suppose those terms you could say maybe is is maybe one of the reasons why that term is, these terms are so recent is because, you know, when you're, I feel like when you're in a time period, you're not thinking about it in a historical sense or at least maybe some past generations weren't thinking necessarily about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. About like we have, we have, and uh, that's, that's obviously an issue when you uh, kind of explore history is how, how those particular groups and cultural groups and generations were thinking about how their work would be preserved and how it would be uh, perceived by future generations and whether they were even thinking about that or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we had, like, I remember, this is all stuff, like, <laughs> this stuff I I learned initially from um, Neil deGrasse Tyson's Cosmos. And listeners, if you haven't watched that show, it's uh, astonishing. You should definitely uh, take a look at that. But there's um, a whole piece in there about how he talk- he talks about, like, the first... Um, the first person to ever author their, um, their work, like to actually sign their work, their piece of writing. And her name was, I think her name was Enidwana and she was like a princess in somewhere in, uh, I believe the Middle East or Africa. Um, and she, she was like the first person to ever put her name to her work. Um, and she did poetry, but before that there had been pieces of writing, but people weren't people weren't crediting themselves or doing any kind of signature on their work. Um, so there's, it, there's nobody that we can attribute that work to. Which is why things like Homer's Odyssey, we don't really know who Homer was, what, yeah. Yeah, whether he was actually one person or several. Yeah. He never signed yeah. his work. <laughs> which is a huge, which is a huge, beautiful example of, of myth and yes. folklore. Very and much. How there's just this strange, especially when you get into the Greeks and the Romans and this, kind of in even the Egyptians and this kind of bizarre blending of myth and reality and mm-hmm. kind of not knowing where one ends and one begins. Well, and a lot of myth also came from like religious tradition. Yeah. So mm-hmm. when we're talking academically about myth, it's really interesting because uh, I took one of my favorite classes in college was a myth and folklore class where we really dived into it. And um, we talked about how all religious tradition is academically classified as myth which when people don't understand that can make people upset because they're like you can't they they think myth 
means that it's fake. Yeah. Um, because we've started to use that word that way in a more modern context. But really, it's just like, no, myth is just myth and folklore is classified in these ways academically. And that doesn't mean people can't believe in it. And it's not legitimate. But that's just how we academically understand them and classify them and discuss them. Yeah. And if you actually comparatively study myth, um, if, you, if you're kind of looking at mythologies from different places, different cultures, um, you can see stories that repeat themselves in different oh, cultures yeah. in different ways. All um, the time. So, and if you're, if you are looking at, you know, the Bible or the Quran, um, as religious texts, but also as mythological texts, things like the flood myth of, of Noah crop yeah, up creation, in so flood, many different yeah. cultures. It's really, really interesting to, to study them in that way. Yeah. And like every culture has a creation myth. Every culture has usually has a flood myth. There's a couple other ones that are that pretty much every ancient culture had um, almost the same. And the stories are really, really similar or in some ways like the exact same stories. It's kind of cool to study and be like, oh, like it's just with whatever the local flair was, you know, or whatever yeah. the geographical region, like what happened there. Um but the basics of the plot are pretty much the same in all of these myths. And it's really cool because it just shows us like the similarities that humans have. Um, yeah. A universal that, experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's really awesome. Well, and that, I think those are two really important things as we discuss um, this in relation to Harry Potter, the idea of one that, like you guys said, myth is something that is, birthed by cultures usually initially as a way to explain the unexplainable mm -hmm. um, and kind of, and, and often myth um, in many cultures throughout history becomes superseded by scientific discoveries. Yes. Um, and mm -hmm. that is why myth becomes in a way myth, why it becomes um, and why we kind of have that confusion about, you know, beliefs and, uh, versus kind of what's real and what's not when you talk about myth. Um, but also the universality of myth and what uh, you two were talking about in relation to how the experience, these experiences, even though the mythologies come from so many different places, how they traveled. And even when they didn't travel unnecessarily or meet, there were, there were things about all these myths from different cultures that were consistent in the way they were telling their stories that related to each other. Um, because I think we're going to find like, th these are kind of things that are building the basis, I think for understanding why Harry Potter is beloved universally, yeah. mm -hmm. um, as a piece in its own way of myth, um, and folklore, um, and how it fits into our current pop culture world. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, there's so much of myth that myth and folklore that can um, appeal to so many people and feel applicable and realistic to everyone. Even if it's something completely out of your experience, you have some kind of understanding of what it actually means um, and some kind of way of thinking about that either within kind of terms of your own life or your own culture um, or just kind of the, the wider human race as a whole. Um, which is interesting when we're talking about so many kind of magical things. <laughs> well, and it looks like you've got a great list here. I believe, Rosie, you compiled this list of some kind of established myth and folklore that we see a lot of in Harry yeah. Potter. And it's interesting that um, the kind of majority of the kind of creatures and, and um, kind of folkloric elements 
are introduced quite early on in the books. And, you know, the more complicated and the more um, personal the story gets to Harry, the less folklore elements from the real world are kind of introduced. Mm. Um, but yeah, I've got this kind of list. I, I guess we'll kind of discuss some of them and, and just kind of mention others. Um, some of them we've already discussed in quite a lot of detail before and on other episodes. So do kind of yeah. search back through the, through the archives and find those. The first one, I guess, if we're going to kind of try and go slightly chronologically, <laughs> um, has to be the Philosopher's Stone. Um, and I'm definitely going to call it Philosopher's Stone throughout this, not Sorcerer's Stone, because that's not the folkloric name for it. <laughs> <laughs> so I get to be a British person for a change. Yay. <laughs> um, yeah, so the Philosopher's Stone is a really interesting um, concept. It kind of goes almost hand in hand with the Fountain of Youth idea, which, of course, does kind of crop up in um, in the Harry Potter series on its own. Um, but Philosopher's Stone being an alchemical, um, almost scientific creation um, of an item that you can make that will help you live forever, um, that will keep you alive thanks to some kind of property. Um, and it's real-world evidence for it, um, can be seen in the exhibition, the History of Magic exhibition. Oh, um, that exhibition is, which is so, so good. cool. <laughs> I just missed it when I was oh, in no, New York. No. It literally installed the week after I left. Oh, yeah, that's true. Because <laughs> I got there, like, right after it opened, and we were like, this is the coolest thing that's ever happened. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I need to check out, though, because they did release that hardback The book, book is amazing, yes, and it has book. almost everything in it. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to take a look at that. There's only a couple things it's missing, and most of them are, like, specific, like, Joe wrote notes in the book or something, and so you can't. But it has a lot of her stuff in it, too, and it's the coolest thing in the whole world. You just reminded me to take a look at that. (laughs) Yes. Definitely do. Beth and I spent a long time just, like, standing around things. I went with Beth, and we were just standing there, and we were like, what about this thing? What about this thing? Let's talk about this thing. (laughs) (laughs) I think I spent a good three or four hours Looking around yeah. the exhibition, there's just so much in it. Yeah, it's all kind of real world items with a few mm. things from Joe that she's added to it that kind of explain her own processes or her own mythologies that she's created. Um, but the Philosopher's Stone in particular um, comes in the form of an amazing, I believe it's medieval scroll, um, it's, which is literally roll a roll of parchment that is longer than so many tables um it's just potions and spells and recipes that go on and on and on um and there's this midsection of it which is the recipe for the philosopher's stone um and it's all these different things it's in all alchemical. encoded isn't it yeah it's coded it's written in alchemical symbols um yeah. it, it's very much kind of I, I guess you could probably understand it if you're an alchemist and you, you study that kind of, um, those, that kind of symbology and that his, the history of alchemy itself. Um, but yeah, to most people, it just looks just so magical and otherworldly. Um, cause I remember reading on it, it, there was something that it was like, they coded it because like the recipe was so secretive that you had to like understand basically the secret code yeah. to get this recipe. <laughs> there was something with like, you had to like, 
do something with a frog or something. It was crazy. I was like, oh my gosh. I think there's an element of Emperor's New Clothes to it. So oh, only yeah. us alchemists can understand this. So you'll never be able to find out the secret yeah. because only we can know it. Um, so yeah, it's <laughs> it kind of cool. not to be caught in the lie. <laughs> What's great about starting with the Philosopher's Stone Sorry, I had to wrap my tongue around it because I'm so saying sorcerer's stone. <laughs> um, but you're right; it's. It, I mean, the, obviously, the the actual historical one is the philosopher's stone. But um, the perfect why that's kind of a perfect pick is um, if y'all go to Pottermore, Rowling had something to say about alchemy and specifically kind of jumping off from the philosopher's stone in how it relates kind of to the story as a piece of myth and folklore. And I thought I'd read it here uh, uh, because, uh, as she said on Pottermore, alchemy. The search for the Philosopher's Stone, which would turn base metal to gold and give the possessor eternal youth, was once believed to be possible and real. However, the central quest of alchemy may be more complex and less materialistic than it first appears. One interpretation of the instructions left by the alchemists is that they are symbolic of a spiritual journey, leading the alchemist from ignorance, base metal, to enlightenment, gold. There seems to have been a mystical element to the work the alchemist was engaged upon, which set it apart from chemistry, of which it was undoubtedly both an offshoot and forerunner. The colors red and white are mentioned many times in old texts on alchemy. One interpretation is that they, like base metal and gold, represent two different sides of human nature, which must be reconciled. This was the inspiration for the Christian names of Rubius, red, Hagrid, and Albus, white, Dumbledore. These two men, both hugely important to Harry, seem to me to represent two sides of the ideal father figure he seeks. The former is warm, practical, and wild, the latter impressive, intellectual, and somewhat detached. Although there are books on alchemy in the library at Hogwarts, and I always imagined that it would be studied by very clever students in their sixth and seventh years, Hermione most uncharacteristically ignores the opportunity. Perhaps she feels, as Harry and Ron certainly do, that far from wishing to make another Philosopher's Stone, they would be happy never to see another one in their <laughs> lives. <laughs> um... But that, I, and I love that piece too. Um, this is a great example of here is the traditional mythology folklore in it, and also at the bottom here's my mythology and folklore yeah. of, yeah. of the philosopher's stone and how it relates to my story. Um, but which is, that's, I think, the coolest thing about folklore is that people mm-hmm. can use it and change it and make it their own and. I mean, that's what that's part of how folklore and myth comes about, too, is that people are just telling stories and sharing ideas and then someone grabs onto it and shares it with someone else. But they tweak it because they forget part of it or they need to change it for the situation they're in or whatever. And that's how these things grow is they just spread from people sharing them and changing them for what they need until we kind of settle into an established thing. And even then we still like have variations of stuff and i think it's really cool the oldest trade is basically stories yeah yeah learning is so important and this is an amazing way of learning to yeah you pass it on from you know the wise women the the wise folk who would know these stories and tell them and that's how children learn and grow and yeah i love it still so important today (laughs) they also had a bunch of stuff about nicholas flamel yes um at the exhibition and I remember Beth and I standing there going, reading this stuff and being like, okay, how are they going to use this in Crimes of Grindelwald? 
And then they pick <laughs> it up and like theorizing. And then he was there and yeah, did the, nothing. The answer was none of, of it. Because <laughs> we were like, strange. we were like, oh, like the safe house will be something to do with this like tomb that he's got that like he was moved from or whatever. Because there was that whole gravestone thing, and we like had this whole theory, and then nothing happened. Philosopher <laughs> ex machina. He was just there to save the day without any explanation. Pretty much. At least so far, there's no explanation. Yeah. Don't expect too much. (laughs) (laughs) I'm hoping we'll get one. (laughs) Just don't want to set yourself up for a disappointment is what you don't want to do. (laughs) Well, I've decided, this is a total side note, but I've decided on those movies, I will decide if I'm disappointed or not after I've seen the whole thing. Because a lot of things happened in the Harry Potter books that didn't have a payoff for a long time. Well, this is not an episode on Crimes of Grindelwald, so we should move on. (laughs) It is not. Sorry, I took this off track. Um, To keep us on Nicholas Fumel, though, um, it is interesting that he, you know, he was a real-life figure, he was a real person, he was a real kind of alchemist. Um, his gravestone was actually in the British Library exhibition. I don't know if they took that to... They did, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> um, hmm. Yeah, so he it was a real person. His wife was real. Um, we, we've got, I think, his diary, so he, we know kind of what he was doing and, and um, his understanding of the world through his writings, which is really cool. Um, but he has become a folkloric figure, um, and he is mentioned in, in many um, stories, not just J.K. Rowling's. Um, so he's become almost a mythological figure based on what he was doing rather than anything else. That's kind of what perhaps ties, because we see so much mythology and folklore coming from, uh, in Rowling's world, being pulled from the Greeks and uh, kind of the medieval European traditions. And yes. both of those eras include that that mixing of uh, individuals who we knew were real with kind of myth about who they were. Um, yeah. The one I was thinking too, when you were talking about Flamel and a kind of the medieval era was, I was thinking about King Arthur and a lot of his story uh, is yes. pulled into Harry Potter. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, there's, you know, was he, was he real? Was he not? Were the, you know, the Knights of the Round Table, but also Merlin and wizards. And <laughs> there's just this kind of people we, turning into trees. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's all this kind of, uh, you know, myth that surrounds Camelot, but, um, there's elements of that, that are, that are true and that we know happened. Yeah. And I think Femel is an interesting character to use in this sense, because, because of his kind of scientific background, he really represents this mixing of science and magic and kind of modern world understanding and old world understanding, um, which the Harry Potter series does so well in being, you know, the, the magical world and the real world sitting side by side. Um, so Flamel is almost icon- iconographic of that partnership. Um, so it works yeah, really well for that first book to be that kind of combination um, with its kind of main sub-character in a really weird way. He, we never meet him in the book, and yet he's so vital to its storyline. Um, in terms of King Arthur, there are de- definitely elements of um, Arthurian legend that we can kind of represent in Harry Potter. Things like um, Carbonell uh, is, is a castle that, um, you know, if you if you don't have magical blood, you can't see it. It just looks like a ruin, um, which is very similar to Hogwarts. If, huh. I think there's meant to be the... Um, like the muggle charm that means that you can't get close to it you kind of walk away from it you forget what you're doing that kind of thing um like the um quidditch world cup if muggles kind of stumble upon it um 
There's also, what else? Magical swords that appear in lakes. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that kind of an obvious one. <laughs> right <laughs> out of there. Or hats. Um, Does that mean but- that Snape is the lady of the lake? <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> oh no! He threw it into the lake rather than out of it, so he, maybe he's more, <laughs> more Merlin well, or Arthur than anything else. I mean, but he's the one who gave but, it to Harry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the dough is what leads him to the lake, and that's kind of a symbol of Lily. So maybe Lily's mm. the Lady of the Lake. That could be, yeah, possibly. Could, see, yeah, and this is the fun thing about Harry Potter is that it leaves itself open up enough to interpretation for that. Yeah, um, <laughs> because you can you can apply. Uh, multiple characters to multiple like even you can apply multiple characters to the same figure in mythology um and it works um i think we've done that multiple times on on the show i think mythology tends to have a lot of archetypes um so yeah yeah, it's easy to then kind of see elements of those and apply those elements to other characters and and work out which you know it's almost like a buzzfeed quiz (laughs) it's it's which one (laughs) of these are you which one of these is this character yeah (laughs) Um, keeping on Philosopher's Stone as a book, though, um, if we think about some of the creatures that we meet in Philosopher's Stone, um, I'm sure I'm skipping over loads, and we'll probably mention a few <laughs> in a moment, um, but a really, really obvious one from mythology is Fluffy, um, a three-headed dog um, which guards the descent into a world below. Um, which is such an obvious rec- um, <laughs> reference to Cerberus, um, which is the um, Greek god of the, or no, sorry, the Greek god of the underworld. Um, that, yeah, I love it. It's just, it's, she, it's one of the things that she does really well, where she very clearly references a myth, but then subverts it. So he's not this, well, he, he is still a creepy, very dangerous dog um, that <laughs> will not let you pass. But at the same time, he's fluffy. He's cute. He's Hagrid's pet. It's adorable. Um, just you play, play music. music yeah. and he goes to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I think there is an element of Greek myth in that as well. I can't remember if it's actually with Cerberus and it's Orpheus, a, isn't Orpheus it? in the underworld. That's how Orpheus gets out. I think so. Um, that yeah, I'm he's got a sure lyre and and plays. So again, like the harp that that um, Quirrell uses in the book. Um, you've got a very kind of set link um <gasps> yeah, you, usually it's a flute in a greek mythology usually a flute oh, okay. puts uh, cerberus to sleep in some versions oh, actually he has uh, snakes on his head and obviously she decided not to do that but that would have been interesting <laughs> since uh, voldemort may have just talked to the snakes to get him to move <laughs> harry does the same thing he's like hey can you move <laughs> all right thanks and he didn't Bye. know he was a parcel mouth at that time so. <laughs> maybe he would have discovered it a year early under duress oh, gosh. <laughs> Well, he had talked to a snake before. He talks to it at the beginning. That's of the true. Book, yeah, he so talks like, to one of them. Yeah. do that. That's true. But that would have been funny. Um, I just thought too, if we're talking about Orpheus and the myth of Orpheus, one of the big things is that um, I'm pretty sure it's Orpheus. One of his rules to like get his wife out of the underworld is that he can't turn around and look at her until yeah. they're actually out of the underworld, and he does. And she dissolves or does he dissolve or do both of them dissolve am i getting this confused with a different one um she she disappears and he um can never regain her soul um so i i I can't remember if he then leaves without her or if he decides to stay there as well but he'll never find her again even in the underworld yeah it just made me think of uh that's kind of what quarrel does right he makes it all the way to the end but at the end he 
tries to do something too much, and so he dies. Yeah. Well, that's that's kind of a isn't that to a piece of uh, a, a lot of myth is that the the challenges that characters come upon tend to be challenges about basic kind of human temptations. Yes. Um, that, that's a very big archetype, yeah. Because it, I mean, that's a that's one of the most obvious ones, right? It's like <laughs> that even goes that the, that makes me think of um, like Inception when they're like, "Don't think about elephants." What are you thinking about elephants? Of course oh, yes. you are, <laughs> and, and it's like it's it's just that kind of just human nature. Yeah, to, as soon as you set set a limitation on something, that's the thing that you yes. want to do the most. Yeah. Yes, the temptation to just go for it. And then, of course, you know, then if you relate that back to Sorcerer's Stone, the Sorcerer's Stone is the temptation and the idea that if you if you just want the stone and you want to use it for selfish purposes, then you're then you won't get the stone. And Quirrell yeah. wants it because he wa- he wants to use it for himself and for Voldemort. But Harry wants doesn't want to use it. He just wants to keep it safe. And that's something that most people wouldn't think of when they're looking for the stone. Yeah. To me, the Orpheus link um, is also evident in the other stone, the Resurrection Stone, um, ah, where yes. you're calling back the spirit, but it's never going to be what you wanted it to be. You're you're kind of looking at the past, turning you're turning back to the past, um, but it, it it's never fully there. Um, and I guess the mirror of error said with Harry comes into that as well, kind of seeing ghosts of the parents, but they'll never actually be there with you. Um, yeah, Orpheus is a sad story. <laughs> and that's the piece about Harry Potter too, that we get, you, you can tie to so many uh, historical traditions with, with the overarching concept of death. Yeah. Um, oh, and, definitely. Yeah. And of course, listeners, we've got a whole episode on death. It's you know, it's it's fun listening <laughs> for the holidays. Um, but but yeah, death. Um, but that uh, that there are, there are so many because death you know remains to this day m- m- largely unexplained, almost completely unexplained to us. You know, we still have myth that surrounds death, and Harry Potter in some ways has become a new contribution to yeah. the mythology surrounding death that builds upon previous mythologies about death. Absolutely. Oh, Michael, since you're on here, uh, like uh, Cerberus is in uh, Kingdom Hearts. Uh, did you think that that yeah. was a fluffy? Because I thought that yeah. was fluffy when I first played the game. I was thinking, what is no, Harry Potter I knew doing in a Disney I, game? <laughs> <laughs> I knew what it was only because I kind of recognize, like I'm not terribly familiar with like the, because there's so many different variations on Greek myth. And that's the fun thing actually about mentioning mentioning kingdom hearts is uh because if you stretch that into another well-known thing that we're going to probably reference farther down in this episode uh disney is in itself kind of <laughs> a, cult- a cultural yep. holder of mythos um yeah. and how they more transform. retailer of mythos <laughs> yes well i say holder because they they have reached copyright limits on yeah. certain things <laughs> um but they but but disney also does in, in a very similar way actually you know we get on disney's case because we think that they kind of kidify uh more darker myths but actually rolling isn't doing something terribly dissimilar um with what she does with harry potter in some ways um she takes some pretty grotesque elements of myth and she like kind of what you were saying rosie she takes the cerberus thing and cerberus is still terrifying and scary as fluffy but it's fluffy yeah um, <laughs> and it's not quite as threatening say as being the guardian to hell 
Um, (laughs) So so there's definitely some links there. A little bit. (laughs) A little bit. A little bit. But also, you know, Sorcerer's Stone, especially kind of as the most fanciful of the Harry Potter books, um, definitely has more of that lighter fare. Um, Mm -hmm. Fluffy's probably one of the most threatening things that shows up really in Sorcerer's Stone. And you had some you had some other really great beasts that um, have shown up in Harry Potter too yeah. here on this list. So the the main one um, at the very beginning of the books, at least, is unicorns, um, which are obviously pretty much everyone's favorite mythological creature. <laughs> They're kind of ubiquitous in in modern culture at the moment. Everyone's a unicorn. Um, oh my gosh! <laughs> but um, the medieval myth of unicorns. Um, is really interesting. It's kind of connected to hunting. Um, so things like white stags that we'll talk about in a moment um, are very much connected to unicorns as well. And that's why you off- they often are, you know, bright white horses um, with these amazing unicorn horns. Um, they represent purity. Um, and in the um, kind of um, bestiologies in, in the... Um, the books of beasts in medieval legend, um, they're often associated with young maidens and, and virgins. Um, they're kind of attracted to the purity of the maiden um, and will kind of go and lie down and protect them in a forest if they ever come across a young virgin in the forest for some reason. <laughs> um, so if you if you see a picture of a unicorn in medieval illustration, it's very likely to be accompanied by a young woman um, in those illustrations. Yeah, Listeners, too, if you ever have the chance, go to the Met Cloisters in New York. Oh, Oh my my gosh. gosh. (laughs) I went last time, and they have these medieval tapestries. It's a whole series. There's four or five of them? I think there's five, but there used to be six. Um, Okay. Yeah, they're they're huge. They're amazing. Yeah, and they're beautiful. And um, the final one, I think, in the series is uh, just a unicorn lying in a like paddock kind of area and they actually used that tapestry and recreated it for uh the Gryffindor common room yeah um so if you ever go to the theme parks too you can see the recreation because they hang it up it's usually like semi-hidden behind the like griffin staircase um but if you look for it you can see it and it's beautiful like the whole series is absolutely gorgeous just and so symbolic, like there's so much symbolism in the whole thing. And it's just, oh my gosh, it was amazing. Yeah. It's it's perfect what you were saying, Rosie, about the piece with um, how unicorns in mythology protect virgins, like innocent women, mm-hmm. because Rowling somewhat combines that into her myth by saying that yeah. unicorns are more comfortable around girls. Girls, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I've always wondered if wands are the same because uh, my wand, of course, is a unicorn hair, and Pottermore doesn't know that I'm a girl, so like, I don't know if something <laughs> I said might have uh, in, influenced oh, that. But uh, yeah, I wonder if wands are the same. If unicorn hair prefers the girls over the boys, well, so I wonder if I have unicorn isn't there hair. Something in the description doesn't doesn't I think isn't doesn't Malfoy have unicorn hair as his core actually? Um, Ron does. Yeah, Ron, Ron, I think does. And I think, I think maybe the implication there is that unicorn hair perhaps does somewhat link to more gentle souls or cause there's the implication I think that's made on Pottermore is that unicorn hair is the one that's hardest to turn to the dark arts of the three. Um, Mm. unicorn hair will resist that more actively than dragon heartstring 
or Phoenix Feather. Um, and of course, that's just going by the three that Ollivander uses, and Ollivander is not, while he says as much on Pottermore, he is not the be-all, end-all of wand cores and wand woods. Um, because as we see in the series, there are other wizards um, in other countries who use different wand cores and wand woods. Um, but yeah, of the three, I think she does go with that idea that unicorn hair has the most difficulty with um, turning to the dark arts. Which almost ties into that idea of, like, purity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Where, like, unicorn hair wands maybe go to those who are, like, the most pure of heart or believe the most, you know, um, in that way. Which is interesting that then Draco does have a unicorn heartstring. Sorry, unicorn. I read two things there at once. <laughs> unicorn, <laughs> unicorn hair in his first wand, um, maybe a link to pure blood potentially, or just that he actually yeah. was more innocent and, and um, pure than we considered him maybe in the beginning. Um, he does so then... not pure in like a good way, necessarily. Yeah, not necessarily. <laughs> um, but he then does change to a presumed dragon heartstring wand um, and actually a Thestral tail hair wand um, at, at different mm. points in the story. So um, he, he loses that purity as he goes into Dark Deeds, which is quite interesting. Um, but there are many, many other folkloric creatures um, that we see throughout the Harry Potter novels, um, most of the time in either Defence Against the Dark Arts or Care of Magical Creatures, for obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> but one I'd really like to talk about is house elves, um, because the actual term house elf does seem to be a very kind of J.K. Rowling-specific idea. You know, we we don't really have an image of what a house elf would be other than the ones that are presented in Harry Potter. Um, but they are kind of created on the back of a tradition um, that a lot of people in the UK will definitely have heard the name of, but maybe not knowing the story. Um, I don't know if you guys also have these, but brownies? Yeah, brownies are a delicious chocolate uh, (laughs) dessert. (laughs) Uh, I think it's more, I've heard of them. I think that's, it's very much more a... British thing though because yeah. I think that's where I came across them was in British folklore sure. kind of stuff. I don't think we have anything. You guys have at least on the girl West guiding Coast. in the states, right? We have what? Girl guides or are they girl scouts for you guys? Girl, girl scouts. scouts. Okay. Yeah. So in the UK, um, girl scouts are girl guides. I think we have a girl scouts thing as well, but we generally had scouts for boys and guides for girls. Um, mm. But the kind of um, elementary school, middle school kind of bracket of girl guiding is called brownies um where you know these young girls um are kind of training to be girl guides girl scouts um oh you know i think this is actually a term that they do use over here but yeah um, they do it's it's like the second tier up yeah yeah Mm -hmm. so So it's like little little like yes young elementary school okay brownies yeah we've got rainbows then brownies then girl guides (laughs) (laughs) um but brownies themselves um are a traditional Scottish um, folkloric creature. Um, if you've oh. ever heard the story of the elves and the shoemaker, um, yes, yep. Yeah, uh-huh. Basically, those are brownies. Um, they are oh. small elf-like creatures who come out at night and perform chores and tasks um, for the owner of the house or the owner of the farm or whatever it is um, that um, that person works at or lives at. 
Um, so brownies will kind of complete tasks that haven't been completed during the day. They'll clean for you. They will um, kind of milk cows. Um, they'll do all sorts of different <laughs> things. Um, they do tend to have a little bit of a mischievous side. Um, mm. So in a sense, um, they are a little bit more like um, boggarts, which we'll come on to in another moment, um, especially when they're angered. So you're supposed to leave out a bowl of milk or cream or some other offering um, to the brownie to say thank you for doing the, um, your work for you. That's funny. It it, it kind of, because the way that that, concept and we we do the the story of the the elves and the shoemaker is is kind of one of the ones that's in the western canon that we know yeah. here um but uh it's one of the kind of the secondary ones compared to some of the more major ones but okay. uh that it's funny cuz the the way you described the brownies the elves uh is a little bit kind of now i would say and this isn't maybe this this comes from a lot of evolution in this particular myth but actually kind of describes how we think of fairies here. Sure. Um, Because I think, uh, like, especially the idea of the fairy, at least in Western civilization, and especially in the U.S., has been been very much affected by Disney, Disney. and specifically Tinkerbell, and kind of Mm -hmm. what what she evolved with in Peter Pan and being, you know, in, in the original kind of more this mischievous individual but kind of the canon that was built around her by disney is that fairies as a whole are very helpful beings um who remain unseen and we we of course have a mythos with that with with the concept of the tooth fairy yeah um which i think has drastically transformed what the fairy is because the fairy was you know i think when you look back on it if you're looking for a more traditional fairy, maybe look to Shakespeare and A Midsummer Night's Dream. Ah, uh, yes. For what the fairy once was, um, yeah. which is not much the case anymore. More of a or mischievous. even in some ways, in some ways, Shakespeare again. Um, you've got Ariel, yeah, in the Tempest. I would say that's mm. more of a fairy. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. There's. Yeah. It's interesting that. Um, fairies and elves both tend to have this kind of hierarchy, like a court system. Um, where mm-hmm. you have high elves, high fairies, which are more um, Titania and Oberon. Um, they're more, you know, Legolas. They're more these very tall, <laughs> um, very grand figures um, yeah. who are fully humanoid, who who do all of these things. They may or may not have wings. They may or not may not have kind of pointy ears. Um, they generally have very nice, long, natural, glowing hair. Um, all those kind of things. Um, but they do come kind of hand in hand with the lesser, lesser fairies, lesser spirits, lesser um, elves, um, which are much more kind of diminutive figures um, that, you know, they kind of go with gnomes and, and that idea as well. They are kind of very small, often wearing kind of peasant hats um, with kind of more um, scraggly clothing, I guess a bit like Tinkerbell. It's interesting that her skirt is kind of both kind of representing a flower, but also could be seen as kind of ripped and, and torn um, and rag-like. Um, yeah, so you, you've got kind of both of these ideas that live kind of simultaneously and also are very separate from each other, um, but all come under this bracket of of spirit, of, of fairy or elf. Um, and I think, yeah, the, the older you go back in the folklore, the more interchangeable those terms are rather than being defined. Something I was thinking about with all of these kind of magical beings and beasts is um of course the the when when this really i'd say reached its peak with with harry potter was when rowling published 
the original Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them book. And what was so fun about that, and I was thinking about this kind of with this discussion and maybe, you know, not to get too much into the Fantastic Beasts franchise, but maybe possibly uh, some of the disappointment that comes along with the Beasts, notwithstanding how they are used in the plot. But the purpose of the book was really to properly expand and enlarge this world by having Rowling take things that we knew existed in other cultures, all these uh, fantastic beasts and show it. What was fun about the way she wrote it through Newt was that she would sometimes state how we muggles have mythologized the creature. And then she would summarize, but she would, but through Newt, she would, she would say, but that's wrong. This is what it actually is in this, (laughs) in this mythology. And, I think maybe that's actually the piece where the disappointment might come in Beast because the beasts in the movie are literally used as this is a plot device to get yeah. to get us from point A to point B. Like yeah. the Zhuwu can leap <laughs> a thousand miles in a day and there is no like I'm not giving like I as Newt am not giving you the myth- mythological basis for that. I've just decided that the beast can do that because the movie needs it to do that. That was my immediate reaction coming out of that film as well. I tweeted immediately, can't we just let Newt be a magic zoologist? Because <laughs> that's such an interesting idea. I think part of that mm-hmm. comes from, and again, not to get too deep into this, but I think part of that comes from, we know that Warner Brothers came to her and said, we're going to take this book and make it into a thing, whether you like it or not. Yeah. And they were going to create a movie based on Fantastic Beasts. And she was like, well, I guess I'm going to write it then. So she was kind of locked into she had to tell that story but she also wanted to tell a different story. So we have these two ideas that are clashing in a weird way yeah. and but trying I... to be sewn together. But it, it does. It is kind of disappointing when it's like, oh, this beast is here just to be a plot device and we don't get to know anything cool about them, really. Yeah. Like, Rosie's, <laughs> like Rosie said about Newt being a proper magizoologist, the joy of Newt in the book is that he has this... Uh, overwhelming enthusiasm that he wants to explain to you all the details of the beast and explain why, you know, what its function, like its function proper is and its history and how it blends into muggle folklore. And um, I think there's, there's just so much more of a richer layering of that, that and a respect for the original mythology that these beasts are being pulled from. um, But would we be disappointed if we were just getting like, info dumps from new yeah if there wasn't actually any like if, <laughs> if that's line. all that was or if like every time a beast showed up and newt was like side note sidebar this beast is this and it comes from this blah 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 like i feel well, like I mean, a lot of people I guess would I'd, also be disappointed with that i think the thinking there too is that just the the beasts in the book like the functions that they all have in the movie are basically not mentioned in the book and so yeah. she's not even pulling from the mythos that she has created. Um, well, in this it's necessity, story. right? It's yes. like, we need this creature to move this plot along. So I guess they're going to have to do this thing. Well, versus what we've and, just been talking about with some of the beasts that show up in Harry Potter and how yeah. the way she uses them does seem to pay more respect to their their mythical identity um, and actually use them substantially in the plot. Like when the like say when the Sphinx shows up um, in Goblet of Fire, it's it's something that 
she and it's almost kind of that rolling banks on that you as a reader are kind of like oh yeah i kind of know about this but i kind of don't yeah and yeah like the sphinx is one of those great ones because you generally you know the imagery of a sphinx you kind of know the that it it, it has a air of mystique and riddles surrounding it and then she takes that and uses it in a way as like now it's a challenge and harry has to get past it and she characterizes the sphinx and yeah there's there's just more to it than this is just here because yeah um, it's one of the reasons these films should have been books first <laughs> yes. absolutely or yeah. Or like something that Rosie actually has on the list that is used, I think, obviously, for biased reasons, I say this, but is used in <laughs> one of the best ways, werewolves. Um, <laughs> because she's using the idea of the werewolf, uh, uh, because the werewolf has been, you know, used for various needs in mythology that often surround uh, a kind of uh, mental or physical illness. Yeah. And... That was what it was used for historically, even far back. It's interesting, too, that she also uses it in another way it's been used in history. Mm. Um, where I was reading about this at one point, where at the end of World War II, there were certain groups of Nazis in Germany who called themselves werewolves and were basically like guerrilla fighters, basically, mm -hmm. and would go and like viciously attack villages and, um, like soldiers in camped places. And it was just fascinating because we've got the kind of stigmatized werewolf in Lupin, but we also have the vicious werewolf in Greyback. Mm -hmm. And so she kind of uses both in, um, like both kind of tracks of the mythology in her own, in her own yeah, world. Absolutely. And she uses the, she also uses the, um, updated version of the werewolf which is not um something that she came up with but uses very successfully in her story um but as a parallel for hiv and aids as we talked about on the yeah. lupin episode and that actually developed a lot in uh 80s film yeah uh, if you kind of look at things like mm -hmm. uh, an american werewolf in london in the um, height of the aids or, crisis yeah mm -hmm. vampires were also used for the same purpose um in the 80s um, and uh, they obviously don't show up as much in Potter, but are part of the mythology. But um, yeah, definitely that that idea about how we update, we continue to update werewolves as that image of physical and mental health issues, and how we stigmatize those. And Rowling continues that tradition yeah. in her story. Um, another uh, creature that she uses with with some faithfulness, but also very much updates, um, is the Boggart. Um, which, a bit like a brownie, was a household spirit. Um, it's a bit more like, um, almost like the ghoul in the attic at the, in the Weasley's house. Um, that is, to me, more of a traditional boggart. Um, it's a, a spirit that sticks to a family, that sticks to a, a location, um, and does have a malevolent spirit kind of side to it. It is very much... Um, the kind of thing that uh, makes, you know, it makes milk sour. It makes things disappear. It's the thing that you blame if you lose your keys. Um, mm. it's, it kind of steals things from you and pulls tricks on you. So it's a bit like a uh, poltergeist in that sense. Um, so it, it really has very little to do with um, your worst fear um, or anything like that in the traditional myth. But there, J.K. Rowling's taken the idea of, well, let's find a malevolent spirit. Let's find something that is supposedly evil. 
um, and make it even more malevolent. Let's make it actually, this is the worst thing that you could possibly think of. And it's, <laughs> it's giving you your worst fear in front of well, you. And that's kind of, that's the other fun piece about how Rowling plays with myth is that she takes, um, she, she takes multiple concepts and she kind of chops them up and mixes them around so that you have um, representations of generally what are the same thing in some previous myths. So we have, we have bog arts, but we also do have poltergeists and ghouls in yeah. her world. Um, but they all have slightly different functions than they would in a different mythology. Um, I was actually kind of thinking of another one you have down here on the list, uh, which kind of ties into a lot of different, uh, elements um both in potter and in other mythologies but the grim yeah um and would uh diz you'll appreciate this i've talked about this on the episodes before but this this is canon because she canonized it with her the wizard cards that she wrote um they never appear in the story but they actually appear in the video games um they're called <laughs> yeah. guy trashes you know what i'm talking about and they're oh, like oh these yeah terrifying giant spectral dogs who roam the hogwarts grounds at night and uh, guy trashes, interestingly, are an offshoot of the Grimm. Um, they are actually, the Grimm is kind of a, a synonym for a guy trash, but in Rowling's world, she splits them into two different things, and the, the, the guy trashes are not, uh, necessarily a symbol of death, but they'll certainly knock you down if you walk by them. They're not very nice. Several uh, times. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and they, and they are defeated specifically with light, um, with the Lumos spell. So there, there's an element of that too, of kind of the, the dark and the lightness, but the grim, um, you know, is another one of those pieces that certainly ties in what we were talking about before with death and kind of physical manifestations of death in the series. Yeah. And I think we've done a, we've either done a whole episode on the grim, probably not a whole episode, but we've definitely done a massive section, um, on the grim, I think maybe in our kind of magical beasts episode that we did a little while ago, mm. um, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting what you're saying because that's what I actually wanted to talk about in terms of the Grimm here is that the Grimm within the context of Harry Potter is not actually known as a real creature. It's a really mm. good example of a folkloric creature being used as a folkloric creature. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, all of these other creatures that we've mentioned so far have had physical representations, have had the actual creature present in the book. Um, whereas the Grimm is kind of this shared folklore between the magical and the muggle worlds. Um, so yeah, the, the Gite Trashes would then kind of show that as the, the physical version of them. Um, whereas this is the mythology that perhaps is, is based on those real creatures. It's interesting. I want to, I want to hear a little bit about the stag. Okay. <laughs> this is interesting. Yeah. So, um, if you've ever spent any kind of time in Britain for, for a, an extended period of time, um, <laughs> going to multiple towns. Um, I'm sure you'll have come across um, a pub or two <laughs> called the White Hart, um, hmm. which is this kind of, um, yeah, kind of global, well, not global, kind of nationwide image um, of um, almost kind of Tudor hunting, I guess, is, is the, the main kind of time period. Richard II, um King Richard II had the White Hart, or um, which is a, a name for a young stag, um, as his kind of symbol, um, his heraldry. Mm. And it symbolizes really protection, um, which is interesting because it, it, it comes hand in hand with hunting images. So, you know, kings and, and nobles would go out on the hunt 
Um, they would be looking for, for rabbits with dogs. Um, they would have archers and they'd be looking to um, kind of shoot down boars and, and stags um, and deer um, for their feasts. But actually going back to King Arthur as well, the white heart, the white stag, um, is seen as this incredibly rare um, creature, um, probably because it was actually based on, on a real creature. It was probably just an albino stag that they kind of came across and had never seen one before, so they thought it was magical, mystical, whatever, um, and therefore let it go. Um, but it's kind of that that creature that they always want to find again. But at the same time, having seen it, they think that, oh, you've been blessed by it. Perhaps it's got, because of the whiteness of it, because it's kind of pure imagery again, perhaps it's given you some kind of blessing or protection, which is incredibly interesting. I've told this in a really roundabout way, I'm sorry. <laughs> incredibly no, interesting when you then okay. link it to Harry Potter. Um, because yeah. obviously we have the image of a white stag being a protective ghost spirit um, of James for, for Harry um, and his Patronus. Um, so it's a really interesting way of, of linking this very uncertain mythology um, into the folklore of, of Harry Potter itself as the, a very similar creature. It comes into more modern like folklore too, because uh, if you remember at the end of uh, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, that's what takes uh, the Pevensies back to the real world is they're hunting the white stag sure. oh, yeah. in Narnia. Um so that's that's interesting to think of these these white stags as protection, but also leading you into another world or almost like leading you home. Yeah, because I think that's kind of how Harry's is used as well, um, especially in Deathly Hallows. He talks about when he's going into the forest, he gets through because he has like his family, right? He has his family around him and he, he compares it to his father's stag, right? His father's the guardian of his patronus. Yes. Um, so it's, it's, I think it's been used a lot um, throughout different things. I really like this explanation because I think a lot of uh, people still in the fandom have the question of like, why is James as a, as a patronus and as an animagus, why is he a stag? Yeah. Um, and why is Lily a doe? And I think James James as a stag begets Lily as represented as the doe. Um, but like, th there's still the question of why is James the stag? And I think this kind of answers that in a narrative way that it's not so much, it's not so much even who he is as who he is to Harry, and who he's supposed to represent to Harry yeah. throughout the series. Because having him, I mean, that's a great tie-in about that idea of like this thing that you're chasing that you can't have because Harry is always for through the whole series learn has to learn to stop chasing his parents mm -hmm. um, and let them go. And, but that they can still give him strength, but not in the way that he's uh, initially thinking that they will by just, cause really there's, there's an undercurrent. It's never really said explicitly in the Harry Potter series, but there is an undercurrent in throughout the series that Harry hangs on to a belief that he's going to be with his parents again in yeah. the physical world. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I think that I, I, this kind of answers that question. If you've ever, I'd say, if you've ever wondered why James is the stag, this is why I would say mm -hmm. kind of like the reason that's serious is the grim because Harry thought he had to see death and then yeah. just kidding. It's his, it's his lovable dog. 
Godfather. (laughs) (laughs) There is an interesting link between white stags and ghosts as well. Um, Mm. So in terms of kind of linking it to to James once he has passed, um, there is the story of Hearn the Hunter, um, which is a um, folkloric legend um, based on um, based around Windsor Forest um, in, in Berkshire here in England. Um, it's first mentioned in Shakespeare in The Merry Wives of Windsor, um, but it's not kind of not certain whether he made it up or if he's kind of using it from local legend, which is probably more likely. So it, it probably predates the play. But it is a figure of actually a man, uh, a horse rider who has antlers on his head. So rather than it actually being a stag, rather than it being a deer, it is more of kind of like the headless horseman kind of idea. But rather than being headless, he is part antlered man. Um, it, it's quite an interesting kind of more traditionally, I guess, pagan image. Um, it goes kind of more with maybe some Norse mythology, um, more Celtic, more Anglo-Saxon um, imagery. Um, a bit more like the kind of the green man and puck and, and that kind of idea um, mm. than anything else. Um, but he is a, a ghost rider. He is j- just like the, the headless horseman. He is a ghost that rides the forest um, in the form of a stag in the in the form of this kind of um, antlered man. So yeah, you, you've got that kind of ghost story element to him as well, which is cool. I'm. I was also really hoping to hear. Diz has a point here actually about Trelawney. And uh, I would love to hear more about this because I think I might know where this one is going. But Diz, tell us about Trelawney. Oh, yeah. Um, Her uh, ancestor we do know is uh, Cassandra Trelawney, who was uh, known to be a seer. Um, uh, She actually could be in Greek mythology here because in uh, Greek mythology, there is somebody named Cassandra who uh, Apollo said that he would let her have the power to see the future in return for her loving him. And she agreed to it, but once she got the power to see the future, she basically said, ha-ha, you sucker. And, uh, <laughs> like, of course, that that made him uh, pretty mad, so uh, he cursed her so she could still see the future, but nobody would ever believe a thing that she said. Yeah. And uh, that's a little bit similar to uh, Trelawney here, because... um we do know she is a seer. She can't turn it off and on. It just comes spontaneously. She probably doesn't even always entirely know she can do it. But uh, <laughs> mo- for the most part, people don't really believe her. They don't believe she's really actually doing prophecies. So uh, Apollo's curse may actually be genetic here in the Trelawney family. That Nobody believes <laughs> they can do it. <laughs> I love that. Well, and Cassandra <laughs> dies a horrible death, doesn't she? Yes. She gets kidnapped by Agamemnon and, like, murdered by Agamemnon's wife, basically. <laughs> it's a terrible story. Well, that's the uh, – uh, prof- prophecy from from the time of the Greeks is always carry ca- – like, always carries misfortune and curses. And really, they, they were kind of the ones – I'd say – maybe we could say that established that idea that prophecy doesn't bring good fortune. It doesn't help. It yeah. almost ends up being that prophecy just ends up begetting what it foretold. Like, because you have the prophecy, you made the thing happen. Which Harry Potter as a whole tries to turn on its head by actually saying midway through the series that prophecies only have as much sway over you as you let them have. Um, that becomes a big piece in both Order of the Phoenix and Half-Blood Prince. And this idea of 
manifest destiny. And if you can break out of that, and the, and mm. of course the idea that the, fr- the series frames itself around choices. Dumbledore frequently talks to Harry about how we all have choices and prophecy factors into that and in that you can ch- you the char- some of the characters and often the characters who make bad choices are the ones who listened to prophecy or just followed prophecy blindly versus characters who actively decided to try and not necessarily break away from prophecy but stay true to themselves rather than listen to the counsel of others um as harry often does harry in the end has to listen to his own heart to make the right choice um whereas voldemort as we see through the series basically just does what prophecy tells him to do and he can that doesn't favor him at all (laughs) he loses every time um and that's a great tie too with Trelawney. I think that I, that must be the joke, right? When she says that Cassandra is her ancestor, that's probably the joke that Rowling's yeah. referencing. Yeah. Oh, definitely. She definitely knows that myth, and that is definitely like a very clear reference that that is kind of being yeah, retold in in this story. There's another set of characters with a notable name reference that it looks like you've got here in the dock. Yeah, they're just a bit of a throwaway one, really. Um, <laughs> it's, it's it's fun to see the reference. Um, and I think it's kind of in the same way that we would use it in the real world now. Um, <laughs> we're talking about the Weird Sisters here, um, which is obviously the band that plays um, in, in Harry Potter. Um, Best part of the Goblet of Fire <laughs> Um But the Weird Sisters, as a name, um, I don't know if it's originally Shakespeare, but I, I, it, it's definitely known um as the characters in shakespeare so when when shall we three meet again in thunder lightning and rain that um those three witches are known as the weird sisters and i I believe they actually called themselves weird sisters within the play um i think so too. yeah i think it's just a a very quick kind of one line mention so when um you know the the band name in the, in the same way that we come up with band names that are historical references and, and you know, all that kind of thing. Um, I like the idea that within the, the magical world, that is also um, being used as, as a reference to their history, their, their kind of history of magic. It's hilarious, too, because the poem and the spell they cast in Macbeth is the... <laughs> John Williams took that whole bit and made it into wizarding classical choral music. Yeah. I'm obsessed it's with so that good. <laughs> Well, and the Weird Sisters, correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't know the story of Macbeth terribly well, um, but aren't, aren't they, they might possibly be tied to, I think it's, I think they're pronounced as, the Grey, which were the sisters in Greek mythology who shared an eye. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the Grey sisters. So yeah. the idea of three sister witches or three sister magical creatures um, appears in several different mythologies, um, mm. or having three prominent ones and then others that kind of are, are similar but less prominent within that um, tale. So it depends on kind of the age of the myth and how... Um, diluted it has become by other mythologies, which is quite interesting. Um, but yes, there are the um, Grey Sisters in um, in Greek mythology who all share an eye and pass it between them, um, very comically so in Hercules from Disney. <laughs> um, 
I love those three. It's brilliant. Well, <laughs> well that's, um, and Hercule, the fun thing about Hercules, because listeners, it's become kind of in vogue over the years to, um, <laughs> like throw bad faith criticisms at Disney movies. But just so y'all know, the, the people at Disney knew that they weren't following the myths correctly. Yeah. The point of Hercules <laughs> oh, yeah. is that it's a joke. They sanitized everything. Yes. And and what the fun thing with Hercules is that they're taking Greek mythology and they're they're making light of it because Hercules was meant to be a comedy. Mm-hmm. So and in much the same way that Rowling is doing this joke here with the Weird Sisters, and it ends up being this troop of guys who get on stage with yeah. rock instruments. Um it's it's very much that similar kind of idea that uh Disney was taking these myths and retooling them and repurposing them um much in the same way that they do with other films but in the case of Hercules um I think because there was such a blending of Greek seemingly ignorance but I don't think this was ignorant on the part of Disney I think they knew exactly what they were doing but that kind of freewheeling blending of of uh Roman and Greek myth plus adding in very westernized ideas of how to look through those lenses um yeah. is where people kind of get confused when you're when you retool a fairy tale or a myth um especially when it's viewed through a more modern lens but again harry potter's not doing something terribly dissimilar in that respect no and i think the weird sisters in particular and and the, these three women um are a brilliant example of the same myth being used several times throughout mythology in, in, in various different European states um, and um, generally kind of pre-Christian societies because um, I don't know if, uh, I don't know what Shakespeare knew he probably got them from from the Greeks um, but um, if he actually studied Norse mythology himself Snorri Sturluson I think that's how you say it um, his um, Volsung saga, um, Voluspa, um, has the Norns, the, the Norn um, women, um, one of whom is called Erthru, um, which is actually weird in its um, huh. translation, W-Y-R-D. Um, <laughs> so she is kind of the head sister of the three most important Norns. Um, and just like the, the, the Grey sisters who, who are kind of the fates um, in Greek, who um, uh, look at tapestry, they, they look at the threads of fate um, and they determine kind of someone's life based on those. Um, the Norns in Norse mythology stand over the branches of um, Yggdrasil, the tree of life, um, the tree that is basically the centre of the universe, um, and um, guard its branches against rotting. Um, so in the same way, they're kind of looking at protecting people's futures um, and you can kind of go and ask the Norns what your fate will be, what you, you know, it, it's kind of early, um, horoscopes, uh, early prophecy in that sense as well. Um, they're considered quite kind of protective goddesses. Another thing I really like about the Harry Potter version though, is that, you know, they've been translated into this almost eighties rock metal, big head yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. Rock, uh, rock punk band, which, which is all guys as well. So it's not even sisters. Um, <laughs> Aren't they described as having like ripped kilts? On yeah, I think so. Yeah. Like they've just gone all out. And then like in, um, in the film, I think they're more kind of almost like guns and roses style. Like, yeah. yeah. 
I love it. And you they feel almost like queen. Yeah, yeah, big, big curly hair and yeah, <laughs> like wizarding queen. <laughs> and again, Diz knows this, but the first depiction we got of the Weird Sisters as like as uh, pictures of them is they show up in the Wizard cards, I believe, in Chamber in the Chamber. Is it the Chamber of Secrets video game, Diz? They actually started in the uh, Sorcerer's, I actually, I should say Philosopher's Stone video game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a few of them show up. There, but they eventually, you get to see the card series of the whole band. And it's like a really big band. And they have the most absurd instruments. Like, you, like when, you, when you see what they all play, you're kind of like, how does, this band must sound very interesting. Yeah. Um, Doesn't one of them play like the bagpipes? Yes. Someone's yeah. got like... <laughs> I saw that one of them it's is kind absurd. of the, the illustration on that wizarding card is styled after Slash though from Guns N' Roses, right? Like he's got the big black curly hair with a hat on. Yeah. Am I imagining that? <laughs> I'm fairly sure I've, I've got that picture in my head for some reason. No, I think you've got them pretty pegged, and there and yeah, a few. I think she mentions that some of them wear, and and they showed that in some of the depictions on the cards, but some of them wear dresses. Yeah. Um, <laughs> too so yeah there's yeah there, there's just a, a mix yeah, of all she cultures and yeah she smashed like rock culture with yeah. <laughs> with traditional medieval concepts it's, there's no such thing as a norm you can subvert it in every way especially in the music of harry potter yeah it's great it's amazing. <laughs> i was hoping before we moved on to this section because i really want to make sure we move on to the section of folklore of the wizarding world because kind of getting into more how wizards see folklore but um, before we move on, we had one last big point uh, that I thought would be fun to explore is that you had here, Rosie, is about potions and herbology. Yes. Yeah. Yes. This is a really extensive thing in Harry Potter. Yeah. I kind of put it as a, a, a brief heading here because we should probably devote an entire episode to it rather than yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. kind of keeping it in folklore. But um, yeah, herbology and potions, it's really interesting to me that she separated them into two classes. Um, mm. because, um, traditionally they would have been the same thing. Um, you, um, especially kind of in, in medieval and Anglo-Saxon tradition, you know, your, your wise, um, woman or your wise man would have had access to, um, something called a leech book. I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. Yes, you have. I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, um, studied this for my master's degree, um, and, and did my dissertation on, um, a particular book called Bold's Leech Book. Um, and Leech Book uh, 420, I think it is, which is in the British Library, um, which, yeah, doesn't have a, an author, so to speak, um, but is a collection of potions and tinctures and um, herbal remedies um, with a few kind of spells and charms thrown in um, that are supposed to cure all manner of ills. Um, but potions and herbology really are key to understanding folklore in terms of medicine, folkloric medicine, folk medicine, um, that, you know, to some extent still exists today. Um, I'm actually reviewing a book at the moment for MuggleNet, um, which is called, she says, looking at it on the side, um, The Illustrated Herbiary, um, which is Guidance and Rituals from 36 Bewitching Botanicals, um, which is a, a book that's just been released, um, kind of talking about um, essential plants, so the, the smells and the um, essences that you can um, create from a variety of different plants that are supposed to give you kind of healing properties or calming properties or that kind of thing. And a lot of that still exists in our in our current knowledge. You know, things like lavender is supposed to, is supposed to help you sleep. Um, chamomile tea is supposed to help you be calm and, and again, sleep. Um, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things that, that we still use um, 
today. We just like are... plants so they can put us to sleep. Is yes, pretty much. But you know, any any medicine that we use today generally has some kind of either herb base, um, something that we've grown. Um, or culture base, something that we have let go moldy um, and therefore use the mold <laughs> to, to create some kind of um, uh, medicine. Um, but it's all early science. It's all understanding the natural world, understanding what different things, what properties different things have and how we can use them, how we can combine them together to be more potent, more useful. And both potions and herbology use real life plants um, they use real life tinctures. They use things that um, we we both know in their traditional names and in their modern names. Things like hellebore. Um, you know the the three plants that Snape names in that very first kind of pop quiz that he gives Harry. That are all actually the same plant. They're just three different names. All of those <laughs> exist in in the real world. They're all the real names of that plant. So it's it's yeah. It's really interesting to me that this tradition exists within Harry Potter. And it's so important that they've given it two specific subjects um, rather than just one. Well, but, and we see, we see the blending um, of the two, I think the most major plot device that the two of them come together is Chamber of Secrets when the mandrakes are the cure. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Individuals who have been petrified. Mandrakes are a big one. That's a real superstition too. Like there was a superstition on mandrakes because they thought that uh, there were faces when you pulled them up, there used to be a superstition that if you pulled them up from the ground, not only was that a one-way ticket to the underworld, but it would utter such a painful scream that it would kill you. So that, of course, is in the yeah. books. Yeah. yeah. And the the way you're supposed to harvest mandrake is, is I love it. It's um, You're supposed to go out before dawn. Um, you're supposed to tie um, a rope around the, the part of the mandrake that grows out of the ground. So the kind of stalks um, that we see as the kind of leaf um, area of the mandrake's head um, you tie a rope around it you tie the other end of the rope to I believe it is a dog um, and you literally <laughs> run away and let the dog run off and pull it out of the ground let it do its screaming mm-hmm. whether or not it kills the dog doesn't really matter poor dog um, <laughs> but then you then return to the area untie the mandrake from the dog um, and then you have harvested your mandrake uh, but it is only potent <laughs> if you harvest it between midnight and dawn so you cannot harvest it in the daylight yeah (laughs) sure totally well there were also a lot of superstitions about mandrakes and like birth right like they they were supposed to help with fertility Um, yeah i think that comes to do with the the idea that it is shaped like a person um and there are male and female mandrakes as well um take you know anatomically take that what you will um (laughs) yeah but I think if you think about uh, a lot of early finds from early cultures that they, they find, if they find a figure of a person, um, they, they generally t- tend to say, oh, this must have been some kind of um, fertility ritual, some kind of fertility symbol. It must be the goddess of fertility or whatever, just because, you know, I don't know, they've got boobs in a stomach. It's just a person. It doesn't have to be fertility just because it's a person. People come in all shapes and sizes and curves. It doesn't have to necessarily be a fertility goddess. <laughs> it might have been, but we don't necessarily have the evidence for that. But yeah, it's great. <laughs> well, and the other, and you mentioned Snape with all of this, because, uh, you know, with, when you get into 
uh, you know, herbology, medicine, and then potions. Um, because we kind of what you were talking about with these absurd requirements and rituals that you have surrounding how to uh, take things from the earth. Mm -hmm. um, we see some of that in Harry Potter. Like actually, again, in Chamber of Secrets, there's kind of requirements for the potion ingredients that are used in the Polyjuice potion. Yeah, and, absolutely. You know how long that they ha they have to when they have to be picked and when they have to be stewed. We, if you, if listeners, if you look up, uh, Rowling revealed the absolutely insane requirements to become an animagus um and and like at one point you're holding a holding a leaf in your yeah, mouth yeah you're holding a leaf under your tongue for a month and if you swallow it you have to start all over again um like there's and, and, i would never be able to do it i know like when you read it you're kind of just like oh i can see why this is such a rare art that not everybody in the wizarding world does um i'd like swallow it in my sleep too <laughs> right like, you totally well purposeful. and then uh, and and things like we have a mention in Fantastic Beasts that um, uh, moon calves do little dances under the full moon, and then if they like leave their dung behind and you harvest it, your plants will grow really well. Um, <laughs> so it's but it has to be specifically when they do their little dance under the full moon. Yeah. Um. So yeah, there's there's Rowling continues that kind of she kind of almost sees the hilarity in those old traditions. Yeah. Um, the absurdity is, yeah. is key. <laughs> yeah. So, and she kind of runs with that and makes yeah. it more of a, of a joke in her piece of, a, a piece of humor in her world. Yeah. And, and before we move on, I do, do just want to kind of give a special mention to tween times, um, which are um, kind of midnight, midday, um, the, the mm. moment between dawn and dusk, um, mm. sunrise, sunset, um, and also um, special days like Halloween, um, the the solstices, um, which we do see in Harry Potter and also in in folklore and tradition around the world, um, which are supposedly the um, times when the the barriers between worlds are at their thinnest, um, when the clock is about to tick over to a new hour, when a new day is about to begin, um, when a new year is about to begin, um, when a new season is about to begin. Um, these kind of rebirths and rebeginnings um, are the moments where either spirits can pass over from one world to the other or magic is particularly potent or, you know, there's, there's all sorts of different traditions. Um, but it's another thing that is kind of mentioned but not necessarily wholly important um, within Harry Potter, but just adds to that feeling of magicness um, throughout the series. Well, that that's kind of actually a perfect transition into how we... Yes. <laughs> look at the folklore of the Wizarding World, especially because there are so many discussions to this day in the fandom about how, what value some of those, some of those dates are to wizards in terms of how we in the Muggle world value them as religious uh, kind of uh, holidays or, you know, or some of the, uh, or whether some of them are birthed from kind of more pagan traditions and how wizards are using them within their own personal folklore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what we're going to go on to next is how Rowling kind of created her own folklore that makes the wizarding world seem real. Um, because part of creating that believable world, especially a fantasy world, is is you got to create the folklore of that world because folklore and cultural elements are so much a part of our everyday life and fabric that a reader 
kind of expects these things. And if you're trying to create a whole new world, you got to kind of have that in there. So not only are we including the stories, but things like traditional foods, games, sayings, uh, materials like textiles and other things like that, um, beliefs, customs, and traditions. Um, it's a lot, <laughs> but it, it really kind of builds it's kind of, it's world building yeah. at its finest mm-hmm. in a way where you're, you're getting these details and these, these things that are normal and natural for the characters of this world. And that's what makes it feel like a real new world. Um, and before we get into that though, I just wanted to mention that even kind of the plot types we see in Harry Potter can be considered folkloric. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If, Readers or listeners, readers. Sorry, <laughs> you are listeners. you are readers too. Yes. Um, <laughs> if you've never looked this up, just Google like fairy tale classification system, and like see the craziness of things. <laughs> because what what folklorists do have done is they've classified hundreds of fairy tales from around the world into related stories so like all the cinderella stories and similar ones are under one classification all the three little bears three little pigs whatever goldilocks are under one classification um that kind of just groups similar stories together and we see a lot of like harry potter weaves through a lot of these like good versus evil chosen ones escape to a secret world hidden in the real world these kinds of uh patterns that the plot follows that are even considered part of folklore. Yeah. Um, I think I've talked about the, the seven basic plot theory before. Um, yeah. Where, yeah, ha- Harry Potter basically covers all seven of them throughout the books, just kind of interweaving them, which is really nice to see. But like you said, yeah, folk- folklore and fairy tale has like hundreds of classifications of, of, of slight nuances of story um, that can be grouped together. Um Comparative literature is the best thing, guys. If you've never heard of comparative <laughs> literature before, if you've never studied it, if you're thinking about studying English literature or American literature or whatever it's called, um, or just literature in university, definitely look out for comparative literature because it is the coolest way of studying literature possible. Personal vendetta. <laughs> and and it's kind of perfect because what you've got is the next point. Because rolling... Yes. With it's very meta what she does, yeah. Uh-huh. But by bringing the story of the tales of Beetle the Bard into the story, she acknowledges that, she, like, she is very aware that she is following plot, contri- like con- plot contrivances, plot tropes, yeah. by presenting a book of fairy tales within the world <laughs> that follows those exact yeah plot and they're like, such good traditions. fairy tales. They they're are so, so yes. great. And yeah. it's, I love Beatles because I love that she's introduced something so classically, like every, every culture has its own fairy tales. And I love that even though like wizarding culture is embedded in normal British culture, they also have their own subset culture yeah, and they even have their own fairy tales. And like, that's just amazing to me. Well, cause what they what she did outside of the main canon with the again with the video games is in Prisoner of Azkaban she introduced uh, uh, they introduced wizard cards that actually kind of grew the world more and acknowledged that the fairy t- so there is that scene that you've got a mention of here Allison where they Ron talks about what's the tales of Beetle the Bard yeah and then Hermione's like um 
we know things like Cinderella. And Ron's just like, what's that? Is that a disease? An illness. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the, and, and what she did in Prisoner in the video games is, uh, introduced some, uh, characters from fairy tales that are canonically part of the wizarding world, but kind of explain the root, like the, um, in the, in her world, uh, there's the, the, the evil queen from Snow White has a name and she was a witch who was jealous of, <laughs> um, a princess. The, the, the Maleficent or, you know, the evil fairy from Sleeping Beauty is a hag. Um, and she plays, she put a curse on a spinning wheel and the prince used Wigan Weld potion to wake up, uh, the <laughs> on his um, lips. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, even old mother Hubbard, um, it makes an appearance canonically in Rowling's world as a witch who like lured dogs to her, <laughs> to her house, um, with like nothing to feed them. Um, so yeah, it's there. She, she acknowledges some of the traditional fairy tales and brings them into her world kind of in a way to further distance the wizarding world from those fairy tales to kind of say like, yeah, these aren't fairy tales to them. This is just daily life. She mentions that in Fantastic Beasts too, where uh, Newt's talking about fairies. He has an entry Mm, on fairies mm -hmm. and there's a footnote where it says, muggles are very fond of fairies and they've created these fairy tales, but he talks about them like, they're kind of disgusting and like <laughs> not real. Like I think he says something that like they're like really like saccharine. Saccharine. Mm-hmm. What is that word? I can't think of the word. It's too early in the morning. Saccharine. Um, thank you. Um, <laughs> and that they're always like sweet and helpful. Yeah. He's like that's not a fairy. <laughs> Newt, Newt could very much be a fan of the Grimm's. He would not be a fan of Charles Perrault. <laughs> yes. Um, but it's interesting, too, looking at Beatles and looking how different characters react to them, because Ron almost shows like he believes them, but also he's like, oh, but they're also children's stories. Whereas Hermione is like, these are fake, you know, yeah. like they're they're just stories. But Ron's like, oh, but like everyone knows these and everyone knows what they're about and what they're supposed to teach you, um, which actually gets into uh, another thing we'll bring up later, another element of uh folklore but i also love in the published book of beatles um dumbledore (laughs) mentions this thing called the toadstool tales and how basically they're these very sanitized versions of beatles stories um written because it was thought that these uh these original tales were too distressing for modern children right um (laughs) And it's always felt like a dig at Disney for me, <laughs> where they're like, we're going to take these grim fairy tales, but like completely sanitize them and make them better for today's children. So it won't traumatize them. Whereas Ron's kind of right that the purpose of fairy tales originally was to offer warning and advice and teach children how to live in the world. Like a lot of fairy tales, especially grim fairy tales, bad things happen in the woods or the forest. And the lesson is don't go in the woods or the forest or you'll die. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Teaching kids about the dangers of the world. um, 
don't trust strange men or you'll die, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the funny thing about that, how that comes under such scrutiny with Disney, and also, I mean... Part part of the joke too, as as Rowling mentions, is that she 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 names the author of Toadstool Tales as Beatrix Bloxham, yeah. which is uh, is a funny little uh, reference to Beatrix Potter and the yeah. very sticky sweet tales of Peter Rabbit. <laughs> um, but uh, the uh, the, Some the funny idea... bad things happen in Peter Rabbit as well. They do, yeah. and and it's funny because Peter Rabbit, in many ways, does posited stuff as being ridiculously sticky sweet with some of the names of the characters and you know the things that the 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 way they talk but the thing is when they kind of get into the antics they get into some pretty violent stuff happens in yeah. Peter Rabbit um but i mean it's the same thing with Disney though where what's happening with Disney is that it's being you know, for all the criticism they receive, and a lot of it is totally valid because they're trying to take over the world. But that aside, <laughs> the, the Disney is still doing again what Rolling is doing, where they are taking they are taking uh, fairy tales and they are updating them because honestly, what like what you said, Allison, Grim Tales and Fairy Tales, when they were presented in their original whatever time period they're presented in, they are applicable to that time period and the concerns that adults had for children. Yeah. And when you look at a Disney film now, they're just updated versions of that. Yeah. I think that's a really key thing to think about with Disney is that modern Disney, Disney that's being created now is definitely definitely not as sanitized as the classic Disney. Um, And you have to look at the culture of the time and have to look at, you know, forties and fifties and, and, you know, the, the, the cultural sanitization that was happening at that time period um, that w- Disney was just part of it. It's not necessarily because of exactly. Disney. Yeah. yeah. And um, like on top of Lion that, Lion King is Hamlet. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, and on top of that, Dis- Disney, when you, when you do think about it properly and you think less about the marketing and about maybe the actual content of a Disney movie, Disney movies are inherently terrifying. Yeah. Oh yeah. They're oh, heck yeah. like most successful children's films, even outside of Disney, there is always an element of fear, mm-hmm. I think, that makes children's movies memorable. The reason we all remember The Wizard of Oz in many ways is The Wicked Witch. <laughs> She's something that terrifies us as a child. Um, but and, yeah. and it's funny because in the original story, she's not really a major player in the scheme of Oz. Um, and they, they beefed up her role actually following Disney's kind of model. Um, but... You go, you go up to, just like Rosie said, you go up to now and you look at the, if you even look at the transformation of Disney films from the nineties to now, mm-hmm. yeah. you'll see that it's how they're reflecting. The our stories that are coming climate. in now are much more feminist. They're much more, yes. you know, they're, they're telling the stories, they're telling the lessons that we now think are important to our children yes. today that they need to be learning. Um, yeah. and, it's, and those lessons are very different from the ones that, you know, you, you would never get almost the suffragette storytelling happening. Uh, that early because it was considered uncouth. It was considered, yeah, n- exactly. not not great. Um, whereas now we're very much fighting for those stories to be told. Um, in terms of the sanitization of fairy tales, though, you really do have to look at Charles Perrault as being the, yes. the godfather of that. So it's not Disney's fault that these no. stories were sanitizing. They were almost sanitizing the already sanitized versions um, yeah. because Perrault was very much the grandfather figure who who didn't want his chil- his grandchildren to be hearing all of these 
horrific tales of, of danger and, and, you know, <laughs> cutting off toes and things. So he very much made it fairy godmother. He very much made it the, the light and the sparkle and the fairies rather than the, the deep dark woods and the, yeah, cutting off toes and, and pecking out eyes and things that happened in the Grimms. <laughs> Rooms full of dead maidens. What? Exactly. Uh, Bluebeard? Bluebeard is terrifying. And we move that into Disney films and you've got, you know, you take, you take material like Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen, which is a very dark and morbid tale. And you transform it into a story about sisterly bonds. Yeah. But you still keep the core. Very, very loosely Snow Queen. (laughs) Loosely the Snow Queen. But you still keep the core, the core meaning of the Snow Queen yeah. in Frozen, the idea yeah. about how love conquers, yeah. you know, all. And, well, even uh, Little Mermaid. Am I right in I thinking mean, that Frozen got rewritten, that it originally was meant to be a more faithful story of I think the Snow so. Queen, yeah, and then they right. wanted it to be more feminist, so they changed basically the entire story to make it about sisters instead? Well, and that's the that's the, the other thing that makes uh, kind of why Disney works the way it does, and again, kind of how rolling changes things to make Harry Potter work and is that Disney had a years of struggle with with uh, the Snow Queen because Walt himself wanted to adapt it and he couldn't figure out his biggest story problem was the queen herself and she yeah. remained the story problem all the way up until the 2000s and then Jennifer Lee cracked it by deciding to make her an anti-hero and um, that and for them, that's what transformed the story into a story that they could tell today. Because if they told yeah. the Snow Queen as it is today, nobody would want to watch that. Yeah. <laughs> because it just <laughs> it doesn't really teach you anything really, the way the that best, it's originally Yeah, written. the best retelling of the Snow Queen is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The Lion, yeah. the Witch, and the Wardrobe, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which that's in itself true. is a very updated version that changes elements about that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you're, you're... And, you know, just like Rowling... Disney lays little hints in their movies that are references or callbacks to the original story. Like people say, why does Elsa make clothes out of snow? Well, because the Snow Queen was able to do that. Yeah. Um, like there's there are elements that there there are Easter eggs that are planted just like Rowling does mm-hmm. um, to mm-hmm. to add to that to to transform that folklore. And Be- and and uh, Beetle the Bard is kind of just this um, intense stroke of brilliance. The fact that she she didn't have to write them all out because she but probably she gave them these like ab- beautifully absurd titles, maybe only with a vague version of what these stories were going to be about. And in doing so, committed herself to what these <laughs> stories were going to be. And then when she published them, she kept the titles. She didn't change them. And she made content to match them that generally speaks to how wizards use folklore to tell their children what's most important to them. And what's great about the book is that Dumbledore gives you that folkloric context. Yeah, it's amazing. I love it. Yeah. And, and he even, he even talks about different iterations of the stories. um, Yeah. Ron mentions the different titles as well, doesn't he? Like, Oh, he mentions the time where he mentions where mom always told us midnight instead of twilight. Um, Which is just a perfect little nod to folklore there that, yeah, these are told by parents to children and it doesn't necessarily matter if all the details are accurate. It's it's the story and it's the underlying message that is the yeah. important thing with these tales. The other big one that we get um, in kind of stories and tales, I think trends a little bit more towards myth than folklore. Yeah. Um, but the Chamber of Secrets, um, where 
we find out that it's been this big myth that there's a monster hidden because Salazar Slytherin was upset and got kicked out of Hogwarts. Um, but it's a very interesting thing because it's presented as this myth that doesn't exist. And yet at the end we find out it's pretty dang accurate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it's pretty much what happened. And that's just fascinating because it, it it's the way history becomes mythology, mm-hmm. which I, at least from my experience and understanding, is almost more of an American problem than a European problem in some ways. Um, because Europeans have such a bigger history of cultural mythology that's come from medieval times and further, whereas modern America we tend to make our history mythologized um, because we want that cultural identity that myth helps bring. But Things like Johnny Appleseed. Yeah, or yeah. everything about the Founding Fathers and George Washington and, you know, a bunch of stuff about that. Um, Davy, Davy, Davy Crockett. Crockett. <laughs> Wild Frontier. <laughs> I mean, Paul Bunyan, you've got, you've got all of these different... Um, and those are really all fascinating to me because I honestly know nothing about them they (laughs) do not occur in british knowledge that much at all no yeah as as much as people kind of don't think about it in this way the because the because the u.s is younger yes um but we we do have those cultural like i just i previously mentioned uh the wizard of oz the wizard of oz is an is one of the prime examples of an American fairy tale. Oh yeah, definitely. It's a little bit different because it's not like the starting from oral tradition, like a yeah. lot of mm. European. And also it's a long, long form novel rather than, you know, a short yeah. novella. Mm-hmm. If that, yeah. But also like developed out of a kind of vacuum that Baum had with his children when he wanted to oh, present definitely. them a story. And, you know, taking elements that are familiar to American children, like, Children of the uh, children of that era are going to know what a, in in the U.S. They're going to understand what a tornado is, and yeah. to, and that's something that's pretty like while tornadoes are worldwide, that's a very prevalent, unique thing about the U.S. That is kind of a, a kind of a constant pest of the Midwest. <laughs> yeah, especially um, Kansas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So it's 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 a perfect pick for something cultural that pe- that Americans would be very familiar with. Yeah. Um, there's also elements throughout the Oz books like you know, a scarecrow, the the patchwork girl, um there uh, this, this whole country of like silverware. Um the, there's <laughs> there's there are sections in Oz that uh, being do so proud feel- of a road. <laughs> Yes, yes, being very proud of a of a yellow brick road. Um, yes, things things about our culture that definitely seep um, into into Oz that are very uniquely American or that are distinctly American. So yeah. there, but there there are other like you said uh, those other myths that we kind of listed that Rosie you have no familiarity with. <laughs> Uh, very much yes there even in even in a young culture there is an identity that is that has yeah. been born through myth and story i think we've had this discussion before michael that um when it comes to wizard of oz i think our closest comparison isn't a myth or a fairy tale it's alice in wonderland um mm-hmm. yes where yeah it, again it comes down to a, a a person wanting to tell a, a child a story and pulling from the the kind of locality and things that 
that child would be aware of. So bringing in kind of her parents almost as characters, bringing in rabbits and, and creatures that she would be aware of, bringing in the dodo because it's in the museum in Oxford. You know, it, it's all of these things that you're, you're fictionalising the real world around you and creating new mythology, new folklore based on based on historical objects and, and, and real life elements rather than based on folklore and, and, and tales that have been told to you. Yeah, I'd say two that are two from your side of the world that are actually kind of become uh, had a big year this year um, that are in the same family are uh, Winnie the Pooh and Mary Poppins. Yeah, very um, much. Yeah, and and that and uh, again these, and these are all, now too. all <laughs> Paddington. Oh, Paddington. Yes, yeah, absolutely. A, yeah, and these all do the same thing. I'd say that Rowling does that make that we some we often find to be one of the most enjoyable. Uh, folkloric elements of her story is that she's and and Alice in Wonderland out of all of these acknowledges this the most but the idea of you know pointing at the at, at you know the table and being like look at that teacup what if that teacup could talk yeah. um, <laughs> kind of that idea of like everyday objects around you or everyday happenings that maybe you don't pay very much attention to become the stuff of fantasy mm-hmm. um, and rolling the probably the thing that I I think we love the most is that she suggests that this is all in fact right next door to you, and if you're looking hard enough, you can see it. Oh, I'm getting there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. As we that that kind of drops into our next element of folklore, which is sayings or oral and vernacular um, folklore. Mm-hmm. So that kind of ties in because Rowling writes a lot of dialogue with a lot of slang. Um, and in the early U.S. books, um, in the early editions, a lot of that was changed. And some of it actually <laughs> was changed in the later books, the U.S. books, because they were like, U.S. readers are not going to know what that means. Um, which is why I love reading the British Shocking. editions. Because I'm like, this is not how I remember this, but this is more British. Um, okay, pop quiz time. I want to know. <laughs> oh, gosh. I can't even think of anything off the top of my head. Don't worry um, about it. <laughs> I come across them as I'm reading and then I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> Next time I, you do I, a reread, write me a list. Okay, I will. I mean, this one's more of a, this one's less of a saying and more of kind of a, a piece that did make it over, but the joke was lost. Um, the sellotape? Spellotape, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. spellotape, spellotape. Really? Spellotape's, I didn't know what that was. <laughs> right? Yeah, tape's not a thing here. Um, we don't, we just, uh, like, I don't even really. It's, scotch it's, tape. So, it's, just, scotch it's tape. just clear tape. It's, uh, we have scotch tape too. It's slightly different, but it, yeah, it's just clear tape. Oh, okay, what's scotch? See, that's what we call. What do you guys think tape. scotch tape is over there? So scotch tape is um, more um, translucent than transparent. And it um, is easier to remove, so it, it doesn't damage things as easy uh, oh, as easily. Whereas, that's uh, so like you, I think you guys call it magic tape, maybe. I don't know. We yeah. in my industry we call it book tape. Okay, yeah, um, oh. because you can so. put it on books and it won't kind of rip off yep. the cups and things. Yeah, exactly. So that's what we call scotch tape. Um, whereas, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, cello tape is completely clear, transparent, um, and incredibly sticky. Yeah. That's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. That's so, so and cool. uh, so, yeah, when we read spellotape, like to us, it's uh, like we're like, oh, yeah, spell tape. But like to you guys, there's a whole other layer yeah. of the joke <laughs> that we didn't get. Yeah. But it's like you guys call like tissues Kleenex. Kleenex is a yeah, brand of tissue. Brand name. 
Yeah, yeah, I use both. Yeah, tape is just a, a, a brand of, of tape. Yeah. But it's interesting because I think it shows um, just how embedded the wizarding world can be in the real world and the real culture. Yeah. So she's, she's blending these things. She's creating her own folklore for this new world, but she's also bringing in elements from grounding these stories very much in British culture and history. Yeah. Um, which is awesome. Uh, other ones I picked up on Merlin's beard and other <laughs> assorted callings on Merlin. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and later in uh, Cursed Child, I think Dumbledore becomes one as well. Um, yeah. And within fandom, we've gone, you know, dear Godric and things yeah. because of it as well. Like we've, we've taken elements and, and created our own from that, which is quite our nice. Own, yeah. Well, um- the the funny piece with the way she uses that with Merlin, and especially when you get into the like, if you reference the one where Ron is like Merlin saggy left, and that <laughs> that whole piece, and it re- like that's a very the humor of it. Is, well, and kind of the humor of it is that he's using it very similar to when people say use Jesus's name, um, yeah. and the reference in a way is kind of that like for for wizards Merlin is a very like he's kind of the top dog yeah absolutely yeah um wizards don't necessarily have a religion that surrounds merlin but we i i think we we get the sense even from the tiniest tidbits that roland gives about him that merlin is just as revered in the wizarding world and in this version of merlin as um any version of merlin that's come before and um arthurian myth really ties in nicely to um christian parable as well um king arthur is the king who was and will be and so is jesus so you know it's the story of you know he's currently supposedly buried in a cave somewhere and at one point will return to rule the english and make us a a better place again um which you know if if you've um studied um the the myth of the seven sleepers in christian mythology um and and also you know obviously jesus being um yeah coming back to life and, well, and saving us all and all that Ar- kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Half Arthurian legend is about the Holy Grail. Anyway, yeah, exactly. So. Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing is very interconnected. So yeah, Merlin being a, a kind of a, um, almost blasphemous saying to invoke, yeah. um, works. Yeah. Nicely. Um, we also get like proverbs, um, especially in Deathly Hallows, uh, may witches marry muggles, um, <laughs> wand of elder never prosper. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just love these. I think they're amazing. <laughs> um, like these little superstitions and proverbs. Like, I mean, we have these all over. Um, and it's just fun that wizards have their own. Yeah. <laughs> like you were a witch born in May. You're going to marry a muggle. <laughs> like, or I mean, and how they influence how things happen in the world because i think Ollivander mentions partially because of this proverb wand of elder never prosper he doesn't make wands using elderwood mm. um or he makes them very rarely because they don't sell <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so kind of how superstition and yeah. proverbs even influence character decisions and how the world works well and then you get into like we mentioned before Prisoner of Azkaban and the idea of the Grim, which underlies the whole story, and yeah. the idea of a superstition yeah, exactly. that literally and figuratively dogs Harry through, <laughs> the, through the story. So, 
What were you going to say? What were you going to ask her? Do you guys have the superstition of like touch wood? So like knock on wood? Yeah, I guess. So yeah, Yeah. you, you, you're, you're saying something that you kind of want to be true or you don't want to curse something. So you, you touch wood, you, uh, yeah, I think it's knock on wood that, um, you guys use that, that that protects it from happening. Oh yeah. yeah, We have all kinds of, yeah, we don't don't say knock on wood. We just go, we touch wood and you have to look around wood for wood and nothing's made of wood these days because it's all fake. (laughs) (laughs) No, we have, we, yeah, we have all kinds of things that we got knock on wood. We've got the, you toss, uh, toss and salt over your back. Yeah. Um, Yeah, We still got that one. Step on a crack, break your mother's back. So you don't step on the side. Oh wow. Okay. That's dark. Don't walk (laughs) under a ladder. Yeah. Yeah. Ladders, black cats. Yeah. So a lot of those we have too. Um, I've never heard the step on a crack rhyme before um but we do have <laughs> those the cracks, so, um, that's, that's interesting no no breaking mothers back here we have not, a lot of concrete sidewalks here sure. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah so yeah the folklore um superstition is is very prevalent in modern culture harking back to ancient culture so yeah of course you're going to have it in in magical world as well and it's really nice that yeah rolling includes it to in order yeah. to make it seem real and make the world have that history that is obviously part of the culture. But again, as a, like a piece of, in many ways, as a piece of humor, because the irony is that wizards have the ability, like wizards are the cause for most of the unknown things yeah. to us as muggles. Yeah. <laughs> and yet here they are being like, this dog might foretell death. Ugh. Like the, there's <laughs> so much in their world. Yeah, that is what makes I their world. I love how Hermione's explanation of, uncle bilious is that so he was scared to death (laughs) (laughs) yeah no it's it's great there's 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 very much which you know brings into again more bad faith criticisms about potter when people say things you know like well why does hermione have such a hard time believing certain things when she's in a world of magic yeah and you kind of have to go with the idea of well she fully steeped herself into this world of magic. She, Yes, she probably did have that shock of discovery that we never get to see. But once she sees it, she establishes what we're establishing here. She learns the folklore and traditions of yes, this magic world Yes, she doesn't have right the cultural away. literacy of the area. She doesn't no. have the, the history of magic that is embedded from childhood that she's yeah. grown up with. Um, and neither does Harry, and they both kind of get that from Ron, yeah. Ron, from the Weasleys in general. Like, that's how both of them start to understand not only the like, because Hermione dives herself into like the academic and the reality portions of this new world, but the Weasleys really help her see the cultural elements of this new world yeah. and help her understand. Like, I mean, their whole argument about house elves is Hermione's coming from it from a very uh, realistic and like look at this injustice, whereas Ron is coming from it from a very cultural understanding way yeah, that this is a okay. that's yeah. where they clash yeah that idea about house elves and how it's just a common belief of wizards that they're happy doing what they do without being paid and they don't want to be disturbed mm-hmm. um, which kind of works a little bit i think into the brownie myth yes. where reading about it it's like if you offer to like make them part of the family more they get really offended and leave <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> i think yeah brownies and, and boggets are very kind of inter interconnected so if you treat a brownie badly they will become more like a boggart they'll, they'll turn malevolent and they'll turn evil and they'll start working against you um which i think is yeah very interesting in terms of house elves because house elves in the potter series seem to be so indentured that they are never allowed to become 
that second stage. Um, they yeah. they com- have co- completely had their agency removed um, and therefore seem to to only be able to be this one element of the creature, um, which is interesting then when you look at characters like Dobby, who are starting to rebel against that idea. Um, he obviously is, is a lovely, good character. Um, but then you've got people like Winky, who um, cannot cope with the idea that she has been dismissed, that yet yeah, you, you once either being introduced into the home or turned away from it, the, their kind of whole world belief falls apart. And then Creature, who has been indentured into a certain set of beliefs um, and is will happily work against other humans if they, they seem to be working against him. Um, so you do have a more complex picture of house elves as time goes on. Um, mm-hmm. But their, their kind of mythology is very much based in the brownie idea. The beauty of that is that Rowling is doing another very, showing another very important function of mythology and, um, and folklore in our society, which is how we use it to suppress exactly yeah. groups. Yeah. And how if we if we kind of just excuse it as, well, this is how it's been for years. Yeah. And this is what they want. Yeah. It's definitely not an excuse. We should do what we, no. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> exactly. And that, and that, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, to, to bring it up, like, this is something we are still doing right now. The idea mm-hmm. that you have political leaders who say to the public, okay, so I, I mean, it's a direct reference. So forgive me listeners, but when you say something in the U.S. like "Make America Great Again," what you're speaking to is a what you're speaking to is a folkloric tradition, a concept in people's heads of a past version of America. But it's an it, in many ways when you're if you're thinking in a, depending on your way of thinking, that may not be a very like that may not apply to a current version. Of America, there are yeah. certain things you can nitpick out of that saying to make it mythical and folkloric. Um, yeah. So, and it's certainly and not something... just America either. The whole Brexit situation is is born yeah. out of the oh, idea absolutely. that we are Great Britain and therefore we are great. We are not great. We have no resources. Our biggest export is our history, and we cannot really make money of that. So we are basically screwing ourselves over because of this idea that we are this great nation and we have all of this great history, but we, we, yeah, we have no access to, to recreate that greatness now. So we should just, we should be part of Europe still. And listeners, I know (laughs) we have absolutely like, we acknowledge we've gotten feedback from some of you that, that, you know, that there, that you sometimes occasionally feel uncomfortable with this discussion about politics. But to be honest, this is what Rowling's, trying to get you to look at when she's writing this into her stories. And the house elves are a big piece of that. Yeah. Because it's not just now it's, it's part of a long uh, historical of things and movements and things like this repeating. Mm -hmm. And that's why it applies, you know, because she, she was looking at the past and maybe looking at trends towards the future, but we've kind of hit the point in the future. that (laughs) Some of these trends we're looking at. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So. If you look, if you look historically at how, if big points in history, if you look at um, the Holocaust and how the Jews were persecuted, or if you look at, um, you know, how uh, black people were treated throughout the history of the U.S. all the way up till the Civil Rights Movement, there are folkloric elements that were created in some cases 
on the spot yeah. to mm-hmm. to uh, give a, an excuse or a reasoning for why the dominant group was treating the minority that way. Yeah. Um, and you can, yeah, you can find that in, you know, multiple examples in history with multiple suppressed uh, groups. But yeah, folklore and mythology actually does play a part, can play a part in suppressing a culture as much as it can play a part in growing it. Yeah. And it, it does us no good to ignore parts of our folklore and history when trying yeah. to picture ourselves as a certain way, because both your nation and mine were created by migrants. We are not purely America. We are not purely Great Britain. We are not purely English. We are a mixture and a melting pot of migrants from across the world. You guys, I mean, your your founding fathers were not American. No. <laughs> nope. our, our culture, you know, English culture doesn't exist. Um, the mythology of England and Great Britain before the Romans, before Christianity came over to this country, before the Norse... Um, let the Norse people invaded before the Angles and the Saxons invaded doesn't exist. We erased our culture almost entirely. We've got, I think, three names of gods um, from pre-Christian times in Britain um, and you know a, a few things that we don't really know what they were um, and we'll never know because everything else erased it. Um, but our our strength really comes from our acceptance of cultures and our melding of cultures and our acceptance of people who need help. Um, when people invade or, you know, when, when people are being invaded in their own country and seek a new place to live that will be better, we should be welcoming those people. We should be helping those people in as, in as much as we can. Um, that really is the story of Harry Potter is, is to love thy neighbor, is to do all these different things to accept people. Um, and when we ignore that area of our history and imagine ourselves as pure bloods of a particular culture, then we are no better than the Death Eaters. So this actually ties into the next, no, that's okay. (laughs) These, these next two points tie into that because I think sometimes our cultural elements create conflict and create um, lasting conflict. For example, we've got, we learned that the goblins believe that if a wizard pays for something that's goblin made, like the tiara, Gryffindor sword, things like that, Mm -hmm. it's just rented by that wizard and it shouldn't be passed down to anyone else. It should be given back when that wizard dies to the goblins. Mm -hmm. And so we get, we get this understanding of these clashing cultural beliefs that create this tension between goblins and wizards that has kind of escalated, you know? Um, So that idea of, not seeking to understand the other side creates tension and creates yeah. conflict. Um, and then like you brought up, we also have some of the bigger belief systems we see in Harry Potter are actually the prejudice beliefs and how that creates antagonism and how, um, how those kinds of cultural beliefs can be really damaging. Um, because we don't see a lot of like beliefs outlined in harry potter except for bad ones <laughs> i realized <laughs> yeah there's not a lot of religion or anything yeah no that's well yeah the positive the the characters who we associate with positivity don't really like their 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 positivity is defined by their moral code but that moral yeah. code is not necessarily universal or practiced like in a focused way uh versus like you said allison the negative characters who like 
have a community of like Voldemort has a community. They're called Death Eaters, <laughs> and that that they are named, and they have a they have a set kind of regimen of beliefs that guide them. Yeah. But I don't think she's necessarily saying that all beliefs are bad. No. no. (laughs) For example, that like, we know, for example, that she imagined Anthony Goldstein as being Jewish. And there's all these Christian influences and things. Um, You know, we've got, we've got a whole bunch of different things that they're not mentioned because I don't think she wanted to create too much conflict by including those kinds of things yeah. in this magical world. I think it's a way but of not alienating people. If you don't yeah. put specific beliefs into the book other than the ones that we should be rebelling against, then you're not going to be saying to anyone that your belief is wrong. Um, exactly. Yeah. But I think she is making the point of, okay, these these negative beliefs and these beliefs that cause these issues, if that's a part of your culture, that's a problem yeah. and you need to change that. Um well, and so I thought that was cool. The, it looks like I'd, I'd love to hear from Diz on this because yeah, I was there's, just gonna there's, get there. a, there's a group of beliefs that kind of throws some confusion into the mix in the middle of all of this from one particular family. Yeah, the lo- the love goods like the love goods are known for their uh, beliefs in uh, mostly uh, magical creatures, but they do also have some other beliefs like uh, there's a. Uh, sickness they believe in that can cause uh, somebody to perform poorly in Quidditch. I forget what the sickness is called. <laughs> oh, 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 loser's lurgy. Yes, loser's that's lurgy. it. Yep. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, like they do have like all these beliefs and they seem to be a little bit somewhat influential because uh, like uh, Luna mentions that uh, heliopaths apparently have uh, multiple eyewitnesses to them, or at least that's what she thinks when she and Hermione get into a fight. And Colin uh, Creevy does mention that uh, he wants to go and uh, photograph a crumple-horned uh, snorkak yes. for the quibbler that that may have been later when the Daily Prophet was going downhill. But uh, I really kind of wish that uh, they had gone a bit more into uh, whether or not uh, Luna ended up finding any of these creatures that she believed in. <laughs> we, do, we do know she never found a crumple-horned snorkak and accepted that probably didn't exist. But uh, <laughs> we do know she went around looking for... Uh, creatures that no one knew existed but i was a bit disappointed that we never find out if uh, any of them existed because the movie implies a bit that uh wax spurts might be real with the goggles but that <laughs> yeah. also could have just been the goggles yeah i <laughs> this is dumb but i think it would be kind of cute and funny if at the end of the fantastic beast series we see Luna and Rolf, and they've like found something. Found some nozzles. <laughs> so Newt is like, and so Newt is like, oh, we gotta write another edition of the book. Here we go. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, and the 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 function, and we've talked about this before with Luna, especially in Order of the Phoenix. And I'm sure, listeners, I haven't gotten a chance to listen to the Luna episode because when we're recording this, it just got released. But um, the 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 piece about Luna, as far as her function and her kind of off the wall beliefs is that she represents an element, as we've talked about before, of faith in the series and believing in things you cannot see and how those, because she has that open mind that allows her to basically believe anything fanciful, she can also believe in things that are non-tangible that Harry needs to learn to believe in, such as having a certain faith in elements about love and death. Uh Um, So... And again, there, like you, like we were saying, because there's not necessarily a religious 
text or grounding within the Harry Potter universe to direct to for that belief, Luna kind of comes, uh, like, close to that realm. Yeah. Um, I think she also represents, like, conspiracy theorists and and kind of anti-establishmentarianism. Like, it's, Mm -hmm. it's being able to question the established beliefs of the culture and be open-minded, like you said, um, to, to seeing new things and to being slightly different than, than you're supposed to be, I guess. Um, but we also do then get to see that that viewpoint when you are kind of blindly looking into it and, and distancing yourself from the real world can be dangerous, um, insofar as, um, you know, her father and the rampant horn and the fact that that then, you know, destroys his house. Um, (laughs) you know, if, if you are so set in your alternative belief that you cannot see what is right in front of you, your house will get blown up. It's dangerous. So yeah, we've got both worlds. Diz, as you, as you mentioned, they, there is an element, yes, of the, of how influential the love goods are and that they are, they are also factored into the plot about the press. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. and Ooh, early fake news. Ooh. Yes, and <laughs> it's it's fascinating how Rowling uses that in in that the uh, how how folklore and myth kind of are used by 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 the press and how that gets turned on its head in order when the 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 truth the true press the Daily Prophet becomes the lying press yeah and the the conspiracy theory press becomes the trustworthy one um, and how that. You know, in in a fascist regime, by the end in Deathly Hallows, when the Wizarding World in in the UK becomes fully fascist under Voldemort, um, how that both of them fall in the end, um, because eventually uh, the the Quibbler has has to submit to Voldemort as well, because mm-hmm. Luna gets taken away from um, from Xenophilius. Um, so. Yeah, they, there's, but they definitely do have an element of influence, as we see in Order of the Phoenix, with how the news about Harry spreads through Hogwarts. Absolutely. Jumping back up to another thing that very much helps establish a world, um, material and clothing. Uh, obviously, the big one is uh, Molly's handmade jumpers <laughs> and knitwear, which I love because they symbolize so much. They symbolize her love for her family and, I mean, her adopted kids. Um since they've kind of taken Harry and Hermione in. Does Hermione uh, ever her get best. a Mrs. Weasley jumper? Is it actually ever mentioned in the book? I think she does. I think she does. Um, not, I hope so. Not right I can't away, remember it now. But she, I <laughs> I'm say pretty she sure I'm, she's not specifically said to have one, but they mention a couple times that everyone okay. is wearing one, which includes Hermione. <laughs> but, and I think it also illustrates Molly's magical skill because she knits them all by magic and they all talk about how warm they are and how wonderful they are and that they love them. And she also does like these detailed patterns on Harry's. Um, one year she does like a snitch. One year yeah. I think she does the horn tail. Like she does all this stuff on them. Um, but it also shows the Weasley's poverty, I think. Yeah. In that they wear these hand knit clothing items so much. Um, I think in terms of kind of modern folklore, there's an element of, um, stiff upper lip, make do and mend. Um, All of these kind of wartime traditions almost of when you have nothing, you can still make something um, out of, yeah, Mrs. Weasley's character. I think she she definitely represents kind of wartime Britain, um, 
modern uh, housewife in, in terms of that term. Yeah. We've also got, I realize though, there's a lot of mention of silk material with rich characters. Like the Malfoys are mentioned to have a lot of silk. Um, Phineas Nigellus in his portrait, it's specifically mentioned that his gloves are silk. Um, I think the black family house is said to be kind of draped in silk in different points. So there's, there's kind of this idea of these different materials also help represent different uh, economic mm. status. Um, yeah, especially in comparison to wool. Yeah. yeah. What's so neat is that you've, you've pointed out too here, Allison, that there's another layer that adds to the, the, what makes this, it's kind of unique folklore with how the wizards how their clothing is contrasted with muggles. And I think this is something often that because of the movies, we forget. Yes. Um, because from three onwards, there was a decision that, and this has unfortunately kind of stuck through Fantastic Beasts. Um, yeah. Where the decision was made to basically put them in period clothing with just a little more flair, but it's still basically the clothing from the era that they're in. Um, exactly. So, which doesn't really help to differentiate what and and the two worlds and kind of speak to what Rowling was. This is this is flat out ignoring what Rowling was doing with her <laughs> visuals. Which I think, though, beasts. I think at least they've given everyone kind of cloakish coats. They're <laughs> just all wearing long trench coats. They have yeah. <laughs> tre- trench coats. Well, like trench coats of that style will become more of a thing farther down the line in the 40s. Um, yeah. So the wizards are kind of, you could say, ahead of their time in that respect. But, I mean, if you look at everything Cakes else they're wearing... definitely a fashion point in the 20s anyway, so there yes, is an element yeah. of that yeah. existing. Maybe the muggle fashions were in- influenced by wizarding fashion of the time. Wizarding yes. fashion. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, we've got this idea of wizarding culture that... They- they have this inability to blend with muggle clothing. Yeah. <laughs> like we get this anytime Harry sees a wizard that's supposed to be blending, right? In Sorcerer's Stone, in the first in Philosopher's Stone, he mentions like people that looked weird mm-hmm. that always seemed to see him. You know, I mean, the best comes in Goblet of Fire with everyone. Mm, with Archie. <laughs> with, uh, with Archie. <laughs> <laughs> and his night dress. Um, <laughs> well, and even even Harry notes that as uh, like, and this is again kind of what you were talking about, uh, Allison, with kind of class systems within the Wizarding world. But um, I rem- I think it is it's it's the uh, Prisoner of Azkaban. Uh, well, Chamber is the first time that Harry sees Cornelius Fudge, but he notes more about his clothing in Prisoner, and that yeah. for the Fudge he notices is. Is wearing generally actually the correct thing. It's the only thing he's got wrong is that it's kind of loud. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because doesn't he wear like a lime green pinstripe lime suit? Lime green bowler. No, it's the bowler hat. <laughs> it's the bowler it's that's lime, lime green. green. Yeah. So he's. But I he's, think he's wearing like spats or something even. Like he's gone like way farther than he should have. <laughs> yes. So, but he's like, he's more on the right track, which speaks to a level of not only a level of a uh, class, but also suggests a level of education. Um, yeah. Differences in the wizarding world and yeah. interaction. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. I think actually the thing that blends both muggle and wizarding stuff, what the best is the cursed child costumes yeah. is we talked about this on the episode, but the, the blazer cloaks that look like normal school blazers, but are cloaks. <laughs> and then like Harry's jacket that looks very much like a cloak. 
Um, well, and they actually wear cloaks and cursed jobs. So yes. That's, and do. then, of course, an element that's that's often forgotten, too, but very much implied through the series, is that they're probably wearing hats most of the time. Yeah, um, yeah. So, a, kind of a traditional pointed wizard witch's hat um, with a brim. So that's and it's course, part of the school uniform. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Harry's mentioned to be Harry's mentioned to be putting his hat on multiple times throughout the series, and it's kind of just something we forget. And of course, it's yeah, just movies, difficult they, to do that with lighting in the films. Yeah. Yes, and didn't Chris Rankin say that like everyone kept losing their hats or they wouldn't stay on their heads, so they were just like, just get rid of the yeah. hats. Like, we're just <laughs> well, the ones the in the films were more like weird, kind of long fezzes, but black. Yeah, yeah, they were. Yeah, not quite the same. <laughs> um, Speaking of color, though, we also know from Pottermore that uh, wizard culture kind of distinguishes purple and green as a way to say, I am a witch or wizard, as I'm wearing purple or green clothing. Um, and also we know that Wandwood has very specific requirements and that they mean different things. And wand cores have very spe- are very specific materials um, that have meaning and uh, different associations with them. So they're very culturally relevant of, okay, what wand would do you have? What core do you have? Um, how does that work in who you are? Mm-hmm. Well, it's so cool how that has seeped into, like that that culture of the book has seeped into our fandom culture and not even really just s- strictly in fandom culture. Like if if you don't know the answer when somebody asks you what Hogwarts house you are, you're the one who's culturally exactly out. <laughs> yeah. like the if like it's you if it, there's there are elements of Harry Potter that have seeped into just regular everyday um traditional kind of folk daily folklore mm-hmm. um if you don't yeah because if you don't know what Gryffindor Hufflepuff Ravenclaw and Slytherin are you are not up to date um it's everybody no. else that's kind of on top of it um and you know is those elements of, from of how you describe yourself within the wizarding world kind of matter to to people. Yeah, um, it's, when it's they, modern they star signs. Them. It's no longer yeah. oh, what's your sign? It's now oh, what's your Hogwarts house? Which is funny because the, the those personality <laughs> elements, wandwoods and houses and things like that, are taken from things like star signs and horoscopes. Oh, definitely. And, um, those traditions that we've had passed down from us, and then just kind of changed up into a more modern fiction and that's funny you bring that up that how much it influenced other people because our our the real world in our culture because the next element is food (laughs) and that has become a thing um if it's a special potter food that someone's selling it's probably a folkloric element (laughs) um i mean butterbeer pumpkin juice cauldron cates pumpkin pasties um chocolate frogs birdie bots beans all of these things that that were created for this world, but because it's become so big, and especially with things like the theme parks, now they're becoming part of our cultural elements. Yeah, Bertie Bot's beans in particular. Yeah, like it's all candy. Has anyone noticed that? <laughs> like uh, that the magical stuff is all candy. That's yeah. true. It's all sugar rich. <laughs> well, that's. Yeah. That, I think there is there there does seem to be kind of a cultural piece with that that uh, that, and I think that points to kind of why people 
honed in on the line from Cursed Child when Harry was like, oh, we're off sugar as being kind of ridiculous, because then yeah. what do you eat in the wizarding world if you don't eat sugar? They're actually eating good stuff. They're not going to be very sick. They're, they're not eating anything magical, because pretty much everything magical has some element of sugar or uh, is very fattening. And, uh, you yeah. know, it's, it is... We do know that they make healthier things, though, because Molly makes, like, French onion soup and things like that, which... I mean, I guess isn't the healthiest thing. <laughs> but, uh, but also, like, during the Triwizard Tournament, we have boulevets, we have all of these, like, other yeah. cultural dishes coming on. So, yeah. So they do have actual well, meals as well about, as sweets. They're just yeah, normal they talk about eating. they talk about eating their normal meals, like toast with breakfast and tea and potatoes. Yeah, and, and Ron's always gnawing the know, chicken leg. <laughs> stew, you know, they, they've got things, and that... But I think the things that are special are these very sweet things. Yeah. <laughs> because I think sweets and special, like, celebration holiday foods, which a lot of these align with, are very much cultural elements. Mm -hmm. um, food is a big folkloric and cultural element in anything. Well, yeah, yeah. If you, listeners, if you haven't read this series um, and you want some really great descriptions of food, uh, try Brian Jakes's Redwall series. Uh, that series is madly in love with food and <laughs> like, and, and what's neat about it is it's coming from kind of the same place that Harry Potter is with its use of food as far as, um, Brian, Brian Jakes uses the, the, if you haven't read Redwall, the idea is it's basically a, like medieval adventures, but with mice. Um, it's, it's much more epic than it sounds actually. Um, and <laughs> The neat thing about it is that all of the meal time, and he really put a lot, he talks about that actually when uh, they did a TV show adaptation of it. He talked extensively about how, how food becomes a cultural element and how it is used as kind of like food. Mealtime is a very special bonding time for the characters of Redwall. It's a time to kind of sit and reflect and um, to come together and that the food that they have in Redwall, the food that they have acquired is um, often stuff that's caught by them, like fish is probably one of the main ones. Mm -hmm. um, and that there's this element of being very grateful for the food and having kind of prayer over the food. Um, and and his in, it, that's why he stresses the visual descriptions of that. And so I think Rowling, Rowling does a little bit of the same thing, especially because that food, at least like initially – and I think she uses this in most of the books with food, food in mass is seen probably in two places, the Weasleys and the great hall. Yeah. Yeah. And those, and probably secondary to that, to those two would be the Hogwarts express. And yeah. all three of those places are meeting places, gathering places um, for kind of friendship, bonding and reflection. Um, yeah. and the great hall ends up playing one of the biggest parts as a set piece in Harry Potter, yeah. um, for where the characters all come together at the end. So I think there's, there's definitely like that, that's a long held tr tradition. Well, and just the idea of feast, especially yeah. for holidays, holy days, you know, like that's how that's a big deal. Yeah. Even in the wizarding world, they have the welcome feast, they have the Halloween feast, they have the Christmas feast, they have, I think they have an Easter feast. They have and through history the as well. Yeah. Uh, in terms of kind of Christian culture, feast days are the most important part of the calendar. Yeah. Um, you, you, yeah, you, you separate your year into feast days rather than anything else. 
Um, Who doesn't like an, a good excuse to just eat? Exactly. Food? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> um, well, and it, it's also illustrating a point because we know that at these places where Harry feels welcome and part of this world, he gets feasts, he gets lots of food. But at the Dursleys, there's a line in the beginning where in one of the books where he's like, oh, he can sneak down to the fridge and get some food. Yeah. And so we kind of have this idea that when Harry is not in this welcoming place, that food is very much a symbol of in a lot of cultures that you offer someone food when they come to visit. It's, it's a welcoming it's a host, thing. Yeah. It's a welcoming thing. But so he's welcome in this magical world where he gets all these times that he gets to have magical food and feasts and things like that. But at the Dursleys where he's not welcome, food is restricted to it's him. It's how he makes friends. You know, the yeah. very first thing he does with Ron in the on the Hogwarts Express is buy all the sweets because he's only got this this sandwich that has been squashed that he doesn't even really like in the first yeah. place. <laughs> it's, it, yeah, friendship and food come hand in hand. Well, and yeah. Alison, what you were what you were saying actually, like a tiny side tangent, but it's worth mentioning because of how how they are pulled from folkloric tradition. But the Dursleys are kind of a symbol of that in themselves. They are they are the evil stepmother. You know, they are they are definitely very much that role of a of a, a distant relation, so that you're not. A, terribly affronted as you read by like oh my god this is this this is this character's parents yeah no they're more of a kind of a distant relation that kind of makes the uh behavior more understandable why they're like like why like give, giving them the reason for why they're horrible and why you can view them as horrible yeah um yeah but uh and then often i think this is the dursleys i think are often actually the main reason why people compare harry potter to and that particular work to Roald Dahl. Yeah. Um, Roald mm-hmm. Dahl's work. Cause Roald Dahl. Especially hates, the early descriptions. Yes. Roald Dahl hates, uh, adults, especially bad adults. <laughs> um, like he also hates, he also hates bad children. Um, Roald, I think Roald Dahl just hated bad people. He in hates general. bad people. Yeah. He just doesn't like people um, in general. If you anything, yeah, if you know he, anything yeah, about the actual Roald Dahl, not a great people yes. person. No. He just doesn't like people. Very true. But but yes, they're they're he does kind of the same thing with giving richly over the top grotesque descriptions yeah. of bad people. Mm-hmm. And Rowling does the same thing with the Dursleys. And that again, you know, not Roald Dahl wasn't the first person to do this, but it, that is very much a thing from fairy tale folklore that evil evilness manifests physically. Yeah. Um and that doesn't just carry over to the Dursleys, but of course, I think the top character is Voldemort. We we see that transformation. That mm-hmm. He can't, after a certain point, he can't physically disguise that he is a bad person. Yeah. Um, that's how he gets by so far in his younger years. There's even um, an element of um, Fallen Angel with Voldemort. Mm-hmm. The fact that, he, you know, mm-hmm. he used to be this cherubic looking um yeah. very attractive he's described as so handsome yeah. yeah and then he becomes the snake he becomes the serpent he becomes satan essentially um yeah as as the as the transformation continues i think that perfectly transitions into your last section here allison yeah um <laughs> especially when we're talking about uh feasts and things our last folkloric element is customs traditions and rituals um 
So, for example, we brought up the welcoming feast um, and celebrating Halloween as customs and traditions. But we also have a couple very distinct ceremonies. Um, and we don't get a lot from them, but we do get glimpses of Dumbledore's funeral and kind of what ceremonial aspects go into it. For example, the the body is first laid on the table and then it burns magically and becomes the uh, the coffin, right? And the tomb. Um, we find out that the centaurs have their own ceremonial kind of send off with the their salute with the arrows, which feels a little bit like military funerals, yeah, um, like kind of like a twenty one gun salute, yeah. yeah. Um, and we also get this idea of the the fire that kind of engulfs also creates these magical shapes in the smoke that reflect the person's life. Um, and we don't get a lot of detail about the ceremonial aspects because most of that scene is involved of Harry's feelings <laughs> and what Harry's going through at this moment. Well, I think the um, other reason that that's important and the other example you have here, Allison with Bill and Fleur's wedding kind of follows the same lines in that, um, as we mentioned before, Rowling seems to be intentionally avoiding any specific religious religion um way of depicting these particular there is there's definitely overwhelmingly a kind of traditional christian uh mm -hmm. setup but there's a lot there's almost too many pagan elements that kind of undo that <laughs> yeah um uh, to like because it's funny because the 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 especially when you think of kind of burying a body and that very christian way of uh kind of the coffin and putting the body in the ground um uh, uh, cre there's there's actually kind of almost an element of a cremation aspect with putting the mm -hmm. with setting the body on fire. We know that mm -hmm. Dumbledore's body is not cremated, but the the element of fire kind of brings that to the to, brings that to mind. And then the um, shapes in the smoke. What's interesting about how that is written is that Harry that's a moment that's another moment of faith because Harry isn't even sure yeah. he really saw it. Um, yeah, it's almost like a vision that maybe only he could see or that he that he sees the phoenix yeah yeah or that he imposed upon the fire um so there's yeah there's there's enough there that you recognize what like the traditional setup but then rolling just kind of says i'm not going to commit to anything <laughs> as far as yeah like a tight religious depiction here um because i want it to be open enough it's also interesting because thinking about Dumbledore's funeral, it also has very visual parallels with like funeral pyres, which is also the ancient and medieval worlds, especially like the Greeks and the Romans of yeah. funeral pyres or building a mound over a body instead of digging under the ground, but building the mound over it. Um, that kind of idea. I also just remembered that in Deathly Hallows at Bill and Fleur's wedding, the other kind of religious-esque ceremony. Harry thinks that it sounds like he's saying this, the, the little wizard, whatever he's called, um, is he's like, it, it pretty much sounds like the exact same speech he gave at Dumbledore's funeral. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At this wedding, <laughs> which I think is, is kind of a like tease to, to, to some of those religious rites and ceremonies where there's a lot of similar things that are said at, these big major milestones of life <laughs> well yeah we 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 never really even find out it's funny that she brings back the little wizard because 
we never really even find out who where, is he who is he and like what what does he do like if if wizards don't have a religion or a church of any kind like where what is this guy <laughs> some kind of efficient yeah yeah whether he's yeah. ministry yeah. based or whether there is actually some kind of organization organized religion that we just aren't aware of because harry's not part of it don't know yeah it's interesting we also get interesting things at bill and fleur's wedding um magical elements of kind of normal things like the birds are released by magic out of the kind of ornament thing that's above them when they get married um the tent becomes a like magically grows a dance floor um the alcohol is floating around by itself so people can grab it, you know, <laughs> like, um, th- these things that are elements of traditional Western British marriages that she's just added that little magical touch. To. Yeah. It just made it um, a bit easier. <laughs> yeah. Um, we also get things like tra- it's traditional to give a wizard a watch on their 17th birthday. Um, we get that tradition. We also get the traditions of the Yule ball. <laughs> <laughs> letting our hair down <laughs> yes there's there's been an interesting uh discussion uh i can't remember where we had this if this was up maybe i think this might have been actually on the comments of one of the episodes of alohomora but the idea that um the the uabal tradition suggests that um the that, <laughs> that implies that pairings have to be opposite sex um, yeah but actually that's never stated and uh, you know that gets into the whole discussion about how wizards view sexuality and as we've talked before i think on the show rolling has stated that that's not really a thing and while we kind of we have expressed doubts about that based on how much we've just even talked here about how steeped the wizarding world is in medieval ways of thinking um and yet because there are parallels in the world of things like purebloods and prejudices against werewolves and things like that the representation of sexuality and prejudice against it seems irrelevant um and within the wizarding world don't forget that some prejudices against homosexuality and things like that in ancient culture did not exist in the did same way exist. as they did today yeah, um, yeah so I mean, there's some fascinating things going on about Pompeii. Um, if you have ever seen any of the wall art or graffiti in Pompeii, um, oh gosh, yeah, yeah, there's, there's no such thing as heterosexual relationships <laughs> being the norm there. Um, so yeah, yeah. So respect uh, to the old yeah. cultures. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's maybe not like I see the jump to the assumption. Yeah. Um. But the but you know it, that doesn't necessarily. Like, that's not probably the most reliable proof in the series that that's a thing. No. But things like the tradition that the champions open the dance, right? The champions dance by themselves. um, That there's this element of... uh, It's kind of suggested more than anything else that one of the elements is that... uh, People from different schools ask each other to the dance. You know, that that, that's where Mm. this magical cooperation and mingling happens. Um, the fact that the Yule Ball exists at all is a tradition yeah. of the Triwizard Tournament. And kind of how during the Triwizard Tournament as well, the Christmas decorations at Hogwarts become 
kind of like extreme Hogwarts decorating <laughs> um, as a tradition of showing people up, right? Um, our decorations are better than yours. And Fleur has that whole conversation where she's like, at Babyton, we have live ice sculptures yeah. <laughs> that line the halls and they never melt, you know? Um, well, and rolling kind of that that's a theme that runs all throughout goblet of fire and the with the idea being at the end that they need to overcome that one upsmanship and work together um exactly but the the dumbledore states that right at the very beginning when when the other champions are showing up to hogwarts and you know they're all noting like wow look at the way they're like they've got a boat and they've got a carriage and Dumbledore's just like oh yes we always feel the need to show off a little bit it's just kind of part of the tradition um so and and, and we get throughout Goblet of Fire that that element of like kind kind of wanting to show that your your culture is superior mm -hmm. um yeah in certain ways like this kind yeah the one-upsmanship um of the cultures and that that exists even in the wizarding world where everybody can use magic. Exactly. <laughs> um, we also have school traditions and like expectations, rites of passage kind of things um, with OWLs and NEWTs. The kind of testing rites of passage of this is how you move on. This is how you get a career. This is how you become an adult, basically, is at the end of your schooling, you take these tests that tell us what kind of person you are. <laughs> um, we also get the tradition of Hogwarts letters and how they're delivered and how they're addressed. Um, but we actually don't really get this through Harry. Harry's is very non-traditional. We get it more through Hermione and Lily and other characters, I think, where we find out that the letter is sent or it's brought by someone from the school to Muggleborns um, who explains everything to their parents it's a little bit more normal. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the the interesting thing about kind of what even made this more of a tradition and folklore piece in the wizarding world with both the Hogwarts letters and the sorting hat is when Rowling introduced the other schools on Pottermore and explained yes. how there are some drastically different ways that they notify their students, their students yeah. and sort their students and how those are very culturally based. Um, mm -hmm. And I think like that's uh, I think what what a great note to kind of wrap on this discussion is um, is is with kind of where we're at with the franchise now and how Rolling is globalizing the franchise, but how we've kind of noted in the past that she's not always the most careful about it sometimes, and kind of what you guys talked about at the top of the show that when we use the word myth, we, we can actually kind of simultaneously say cultural belief for mm -hmm. some people. And Rowling has overstepped that boundary a few times. Um, yeah. I think the most egregious one, obviously being the native American uh, stories that she put up on Pottermore. And interestingly, before crimes of Grindelwald, we didn't get anything like that for France. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'm just wondering if... The, and and what, what's almost disappointing in a way is that by globalizing the wizarding world and exploring more cultures um, with this opportunity of Fantastic Beasts, 
there's almost an element of because there was a big PR oopsies with the Native American story, I kind of think we're not going to get that anymore. I wonder, though, if the French one, too, part of it was she was like, well, I've introduced them to French wizards. She has. Before. But what was interesting about that was uh, none of that came into play. In that's crime. true. Um, like, we don't even hear about Bobatons. None of the French characters that we met were particularly important. So I think if 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 any of the actual yeah. Frenchness of the being in France had been important to the plot, we would have gotten more of French wizarding lore. Um, but just them being in France was more of a, because Grindelwald couldn't return to England, um, than anything else, I think. Um, so I don't think the French aspect of it is a problem. It was interesting to me that we had a lot more Asian myth um, in this film, despite being in France, mm-hmm. through the circus. And obviously there was a, a bit of a furore about that um, once, once Nagini was um, kind of revealed to be who she was. Um, there, yeah, there's a very fine line between cultural appropriation and um, yes. representation. Um, I think whilst it's great that Joe said, okay, you want to make these films, that's fine, but I've got to be involved with them. Um, having her as a sole writer or not having, you know, Cultural sensitivity advisors. readers, all of that kind yeah. of thing can be an issue, especially if we are trying to globalize these stories. And going so quickly. Yeah. Um, I think that's part of the problem. Especially too. when we are reduced to a simple film storyline. The the Yeah, like we said earlier in this episode, the biggest problem with the film was that it should have been a book first. And I think if it was a book first, we would have had a lot more lore, a lot more folklore, a lot more mythology, a lot more care for the culture. Layering of everything. all of that put into (laughs) it. Um, Jo is amazing when she has the ability and the the time and the space to develop um, all of these details that we've talked about in this episode. And you simply can't do that in a Pottermore post or a film storyline because there's not enough time. Because it's... And it's too big of a story she's trying to tell because she's making it global. There's going to be too much involved. And I mean, when Goblet of Fire came out, everyone was like, holy crap, this book is massive. (laughs) And like, this is why it's basically Wizarding Olympics, you know, and we're, we're not getting that. And so I think a lot of people are disappointed and upset because it's being glossed over and ignored and not getting the attention and detail and layering we would hope it would get. Not that I don't think she doesn't have it in mind necessarily some of the time, but that it's just getting shafted because of the medium. And that's kind of why I think there is that. I think just looking back at this episode and how we've kind of pulled out what about these references to folklore and mythology make the writing of Harry Potter so rich. Mm-hmm. I think that's the kind of pinpointing why these newer piece, pieces of material that are coming out from the Wizarding World franchise have been disappointing in some way. Even when fans kind of see something and they're like, that was, I liked that, but I don't know why I have certain problems with it. And I think mm-hmm. this is kind of one of the main reasons why, even if you enjoyed Crimes of Grindelwald, why you felt like something might have been off if you did because that's my exact thoughts after walking out of it i don't hate it but i there's a lot yeah yeah and this is this is what's missing it Um, moved too quickly there wasn't enough world building yeah you can't have a five-hour movie yeah 
I mean, <laughs> we wouldn't Lord complain. Tell the Hobbit. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, and... I'll sit through that sure thing. <laughs> and that's... And in some ways, for many people, that's why even the Harry Potter films function better. Because, like you guys said, we had the books first. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you're missing any of that context while you watch the movie, you can fill it in with what you read in the book. Um, like and it's you, often why a lot of people who say they don't like Harry Potter they've only seen the film. They don't actually understand the world yeah. because the film wasn't able to include all of the stuff that we've discussed in this episode. Um, and sometimes yeah. there are things in the films that like, they've just hidden in the background that if you've read the books, yeah. you understand what's happening. But because we don't necessarily have all that context for Fantastic Beasts, even if something's hidden in the background, we miss it a lot of the time because we're like trying to figure out what's going on with the plot. <laughs> well, um, to, to go back to... Uh, to Disney for a moment, because I think this is a great discussion kind of what, of what generally is going on in Hollywood. I think we've seen only in the last year or two, a movement to incorporate others in other more minoritized groups into storytelling, into block and blockbuster storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I think in some ways that's why people feel like Harry Potter's falling behind because like what you said, Rosie, Rowling is the sole writer here. And the people who are assisting her are all white. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. And most franchises now are teams. Of yeah. Teams. Yes. Well, and like Marvel is a massive team of people for every project. Uh, Disney is massive teams of people for every project, but because these started so small and then exploded, it's still all coming from one person, which gives it some limitations. And I do think it must be, really difficult for her because at the same time you know this whole episode has been applauding her for how detailed and how wonderfully she manages to take elements of existing folklore of existing culture and either include them faithfully or make them her own and develop them in new and interesting ways and she's trying to do the same thing with cultures from the rest of the world and you know we're we're celebrating her with one hand for doing it with her own culture and then kind of penalizing her for for trying to do that with others um and it's it's a very difficult line to follow when you know we are calling out for more representation we want to see more characters we want to see more world we want to see more of these different cultures um but the most important thing is then to do your research talk to people get other people's influence and other people's opinions so that you are not overstepping boundaries and misinterpreting things and falling into stereotypes and pitfalls um, that are offensive. Um, You can definitely play with culture, but you have to do it with care. Um, Well, and why I wanted to reference Disney listeners, and I always talk about her on this show, and if you haven't been watching her videos after my recommendations, you you might want to figure out, try at least one of them at this point. But uh, Lindsay Ellis did a wonderful video and this is a great example of this discussion of uh, comparing, com- comparing Pocahontas to Moana. And if you boil, oh, if you, yeah. if you boil them down to the basic plot c- devices, they're the same movie, but really? Moana represents, they are they're, they You have a, they're, pretty close. they're very, very close. Okay. Really. If you boil every Disney movie down to its essentials, they're the same movie, but <laughs> Moana represents what we're kind of discussing here that I think feels like a bit of a lack in what Rowling's doing. Moana was still, you know, directed by 
John Clements or Ron Musker and John Clements, who are two old white guys who have been at Disney forever. But there was an acknowledgement that a lot of mistakes were made in the past. And there yeah. was, as Rosie mentioned, lots of sensitivity editors and writers who joined them to create this story. They sought out individuals who were actually you know, Pacific Islanders who yeah. could contribute to the voice acting and therefore also contribute to the, to the cultural awareness of the movie. And that's kind of the model. I think that we as a fandom are asking Rowling to move towards that's kind of, because even when the native American piece came out, there were native Americans who said, Hey, if you had asked us, we could have talked to you more about this. Mm -hmm. Um, and we could have, it's not that we didn't want to see us represented in the world, but the way you did it was disrespectful to our myths and our traditions. Yeah. Um, so mm -hmm. hopefully, you know, as we move forward and of course, you know, then, then what, as you mentioned, <laughs> we kind of go to the opposite end of the spectrum where crimes of Grindelwald is. So France is a backdrop <laughs> and we're not going to talk about it. <laughs> exactly. um, so, but you know, that's also not really what fans want either. So hopefully, and I know some, especially listeners on Speak Beastie, we have listeners from France on Speak Beastie who were horribly disappointed yeah. um, that their wizarding culture wasn't explored. So hopefully, you know, after looking through this and seeing and recognizing and remembering that Rowling does do such a good job with this when it's it's under her control but also like fully her expertise she's given the time and space yes. yeah. if if there is an if there is you know an a, a, an opportunity where she can meet with individuals who have the expertise that she is lacking for these traditions and cultures and myths hopefully that will allow the potter series to maybe grow in a more favorable progressive direction that we're maybe losing sight of these days yeah. Um, so, yeah. but I think we've done a good job of pulling all of these yeah. pieces out, huh? <laughs> yeah. And if you guys out there are creative writers, if you're writing a novel, if you're writing your own magical world, fictional world, whatever, uh, hopefully you've taken from this discussion that two most important things to do are do your research, read widely, and build your folklore, build your mythology, because it is what yeah. makes or breaks a world. And if you're in academics, we basically only scratched yeah. the surface here. So have fun being academic about these things because there's a lot more you could dive into. Yeah, what I would love to see too, listeners, in the comments for this episode is if you all have ideas, because like Allison said, we just scratched the surface. If you have other elements of mythology and folklore within Harry Potter that you want us to discuss, let us know because we definitely spotted a few that could just take up a whole episode on its yeah. own. And this is one of those particular topics that we could probably revisit again in future yeah. um, because it's got enough to it that we could definitely... Yeah. explore more but for now we would definitely like to thank diz for joining us on this episode today uh so thank you diz for finally getting to be on an episode with us after all the comments <laughs> yeah. you've left us in the past so yeah it was fun <laughs> oh good you enjoyed yourself that's what i'm glad to hear yeah if you want to be on the show visit our website alohomorapodcast.com and choose be on the show and follow the instructions send us your audition and you could be on the show with us. You can also go to our topic submit page. Tell us what you'd like to hear us talk about, more folklore things, um, specific chapters you might want us to revisit, other topics that you think we should dive into more. Um, we are always looking for more things to talk about because... <laughs> we love to talk. I mean, there's a lot, but <laughs> we want to know what you want to hear too. Um, 
You just need a microphone and a pair of headphones. And if you're chosen to guest host, we will walk you through everything else you need to do. And if you don't want to be on the show, but you'd like to get in touch with us, there's a lot of ways to do that. You can follow us on Twitter at Alohomora MN. Our Facebook, facebook.com slash open the Dumbledore. Our main website, alohomorapodcast.com, where you can listen to episodes and leave comments. Our YouTube page, youtube.com slash alohomoramn, where we've actually been putting up quite a few videos recently. And our email, alohomorapodcast at gmail.com. And just one final more reminder uh, to check out our Patreon. It is patreon.com forward slash alohomora. Thanks again so much to Elena Rinna for for sponsoring this episode. Thank you. Yay. Thank Yay. you for letting us Twitter on about amazing folklore for two hours. Yay. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you guys out there can sponsor us for as low as $1 a month and be sure to check out all of the higher tiers for more access to amazing things as well. All that remains to say is that I am Rosie Morris. I'm Michael Harley. And I'm Alison Sigurd. Thank you for listening to episode 262 of Aloha Mora. Open. The Tales of Beetle the Bard. Patrick, please cut this out, but we can't. <laughs> 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 and I was oh. like, ooh. Oh, dear. Yeah, maybe it's a good, maybe it's a, maybe it would be nice to not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was a pretty good, <laughs> but I was just like, ugh. <laughs> <laughs>